Southern Skies. Online Media. Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's ultimate CASA-approved electronic flight bag for iPad. Try it free for the first 30 days, ozrunways.com. And by the Australian Aerobatic Academy, the leaders in primary and advanced flight training at Bankstown and Wollongong. See how they can take your proficiency to the next flight level at aeroacademy.com.au. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 114 of Australia's Aviation Show. I'm Steve Vischer, well, what's left of me anyway, and joining me also is the semi-complete Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Hey, mate. Uh, not too bad. Uh, can we remember how to do this? It's been a little while. It certainly Where's has. my script? Well, I don't know, mate. There's so many bits of my body falling apart at the moment. I'm not sure. Maybe my brain will go next. How's your body holding up? Oh, mostly okay. Mostly okay. The uh, MRI is scheduled for next week and I get to go in and they go, zap! Well, well this Podcasting caper must be hard work, mate, because I'm now sitting here in the studio with my leg in a brace waiting for a knee reconstruction. I think I'm going to have to find something. You know, who thought we could turn podcasting into a blood sport? Oh, mate, I, I think we're going to have to rename this to, uh, you know, Bits Falling Off is Crazy Down Under. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And joining us also for this episode from Perth, it's Ben Jones. Jonesy, uh, any medical problems you'd like to talk about? No, no, I'm uh, fighting fit at the moment. Oh, that's good to hear, mate. What's going on over there in the West, aviation-wise? Uh, we just had the uh, West Australian Light Aircraft Championship in Perth, and uh, I've actually been doing a bit of work on my uh, aircraft. Oh, right, so you've been walking into the lounge room again, or are you building it in the kitchen these days? No, no, it's uh, all in the workshop out the back these days. <laughs> oh, someone's got to live in. Yeah, actually, I can't use those sort of jokes, actually, because I'm just thinking a bit later in this episode, there's a there's a there's uh, an interview that you and I did where I made all sorts of jokes like that, so we might just leave that till a bit later. <laughs> yes, yes, I remember. Okay, so this episode is the long-awaited Ozfly episode, and joining us to uh, help with this episode, our special guest, a, a national councillor and Ozfly team leader from the Estra. David Brown joining us from Brisbane. David, how are you, mate? I'm very good, uh, Steve, and I could report maybe a small paper cut, perhaps. Um, oh, oh, my goodness. Injured in the course of bureaucratic duty. Yeah, now we did yeah. uh, we did ask you to sign a waiver before you started recording with us, so I think we're all safe. <laughs> no, no, you'll probably, if, you, if your text messages and phones are ringing, that's my lawyers looking for you right now. <laughs> quick, Jan, quick, Grant. I'm okay. Grant, change the company phone number quickly. <laughs> no, quick. <laughs> well, we know somewhere. you've got all the money, so we're after you. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we're here to talk about Ozfly, Ozfly 2013, the, uh, the second time we've run Ozfly and uh, I thought it was a very successful event the second year in David and I thought uh, you know after the uh, test run we did the year before I thought uh, things are coming together a lot more smoothly this time. Yeah we had a uh, from my perspective uh, a, a far uh, more well run uh, well oiled we said certainly learnt a lot of things from the year before I think the uh, the flying displays went off much better the uh, exhibitors had more space we had more exhibitors so we needed more space so a lot of those things went far better to plan I certainly had a lot of time to get around and talk to people and I would have to say I was probably running at a stress level a quarter of that of the year before so if that's any sign I think it was, uh, it was certainly a success. Probably from your vantage point you probably observed a similar kind of thing I would imagine. Well actually I observed you looking far more relaxed now that you mentioned it. You uh, you certainly looked more at ease with it this year so I guess it would have been uh, you know a very nervous time last year getting it all off the ground and it's certainly no small undertaking uh, to, to get something like this running but uh, yeah, as you say this year you know sort of the, the plan 
plans were already sort of laid out in a in a rough form. It was just a matter of improving and seeing what we can do better this time. Yeah, we just winged it this year based <laughs> on what we learned from winging it last year. Um, yeah. no, seriously, seriously, you got to be you got to be kind of careful though, mate. You got to be kind of careful. You've just admitted to people that um, you weren't quite as stressed as the first one, and that means you've got some spare CPU cycles. You've got more uh, bandwidth; they can load yeah. more on you for next year. Yeah, well, okay, we can erase that section. Don't broadcast that. <laughs> the overall weekend went very well. Um, certainly, there was some good trade done. We had lesser numbers, uh, unfortunately, a lot of folk, and I would have to say people in the more recreational end of the aviation spectrum, and we're trying to encourage everybody from gliders, balloons, trikes, right through to Dick Smith and his citation. If you looked around the paddock, we had a considerably larger presence of what I would call VH tails. Mm-hmm. And I think the weather on the coast, whilst we had fantastic weather out on the uh, western slopes, the uh, weather around the sort of the J curve uh, kept a lot of people at home. So yeah. um, the the overall numbers were about the same as last year, but we know that uh, we probably were we were probably down maybe a couple of hundred aircraft. Um, so uh, hopefully all the folk that were unable to uh, penetrate the weather systems over the ranges this year will be able to make the trek and. Enjoy uh, 2014. Yeah, we do know of a couple of people who made it by car because they couldn't trust the weather uh, coming up from Melbourne. And um, I, I think there was a couple I know who had to stay in Sydney and couldn't make it through. But uh, yeah, VH tails, that of course being the Australian GA registration. Overall, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a good weekend and uh, very successful and we're certainly very happy with the results. So uh, no complaints um, from us at all just the way it goes with uh, with weather and you know at that time of year it's always good weather in the uh, in the narrow mine region and the people at narrow mine the townsfolk the council everybody did a fantastic job and and uh, it was just a pity a few folk missed out so uh, there's always next year wind yourself up for 2014 and uh, it'll be about the same time i think the dates are around about the 11th 12th 13th 14th i don't have a calendar handy but that's around about the uh, time frame for next year we're planning a slightly uh, bigger program maybe a little bit more uh, adf participation and we expect to um, you know, in- incrementally slowly grow this into being a uh, you know, a mini Oshkosh, as uh, some people have referred to it as. We're not going to go too crazy. We're just going to build it slowly, slowly. But yeah. certainly amongst all the aviation organisations, I think there's a uh, a growing commitment to, to make this happen, you know, forever and a day. Well, I'll tell you what, the weather was uh, was great, as you say, uh, for everybody that could make it there. And, of course, the the, uh, the PCDU team was there, uh, we all trekking up there, apart from myself. I went up by car, but uh, everybody else went up in the team bus. Well, I guess, actually, Jonesy, you came over by Qantas or someone first, and then you went up from Melbourne in the team bus. And, uh, of course, Ellen Van Page, our uh, studio engineer, and uh, he uh, roped his brother Kurt into coming up as well. And uh, it was a, a big effort to get up there and, and set it up, but uh, a very successful weekend, I thought. And we've recorded tons of content, which we're going to uh, go into in this episode. Boy, uh, I tell you what, uh, it's going to give you a bit of an idea of, uh, you know, the sort of the, the banter that went on from, from our perspective, but hopefully gives uh, people a bit of an idea of the atmosphere that we experienced up there at Ozfly, and hopefully it will encourage uh, more people to come in coming years. It's a pity you don't do video podcasts, and I, it's a pity I didn't have a video camera when these guys rolled in Wednesday morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sight for sore eyes, I can assure you. Yeah, it would have created a few sore eyes, I reckon. 
Well, they had sore eyes, I think. Oh, it was mostly me bugged out from driving the bus, that's for sure. Yeah, there was one silly bunny, wasn't there? I don't know what you're complaining about, Grant. I had to fly over across Australia the night before, get three hours of sleep and get woken up at about 2.30 Perth time to uh, hop on a bus with you. Ben, next year you can fly Sydney to Dubbo direct. Ooh. There's a tip. As a tip, I, I have been thinking about that, and uh, <laughs> I nearly did it last year. But we flew in last year into Sydney, and then we got a hire car with a motor mine, and we did the uh, seven-hour drive up to Narromine. Now, right. if we had have actually flown into Sydney and then caught a regional airline out, uh, we would have actually got there an hour later than if we drove. So we ended yeah, up driving. Mm. Uh, you poor buggers! I, I sat in the flight levels for about two and a bit hours. It wasn't really wasn't really a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think of how to politely say, "Hey." <laughs> Hopefully next year I'll be uh, flying over from Perth direct in my uh, in an aircraft. In the Corby, now that'll be a quick trip. Uh, not the Cor- not the Corby. Um, hopefully a, a an RV of some sort. Uh, now you're talking. Okay, Life well, begins uh, at 160 knots, boys. Oh, God, never listen, would you? Okay, well let's get into this episode. Uh, plenty of interviews here. Uh, a couple of uh, notable people we've got coming up in this episode. Uh, interview with Dave Baddams. A lot of people in the aviation scene around Australia and probably in other parts of the world too will know about Dave and his exploits so a fantastic interview there. Also uh, coming up a bit later in the show a great interview with Dick Smith and Ryan Campbell. Dick Smith actually uh, flew in uh, as mentioned in his uh, citation jet and uh, we managed to nab him and get him to come under the marquee with us and uh, then we got Ryan Campbell a fantastic interview there along with heaps of other stuff so uh, episode 114 let's go. You're listening to Ozfly Radio, thanks to Aero Refuelers and QBE Insurance, Australia's private and sport aviators together under one sky. And I'm Grant from Plane Crazy Down Under, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host Steve Vicious. Steve, welcome to the tarmac. Yes, uh, thanks Grant, it's nice to be here, and I'll tell you what, uh, here at Narromine, a perfect day for flying, a perfect day for Ozfly. Indeed, and just don't forget to put your sunscreen on, drink lots of water, as per all the reminders we're giving everyone. Right, we're also joined here by Rob Fisher. So we've got Steve Fisher and Rob Fisher. I think I can remember those two names. Rob, you're from Superior Air Parts. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Rob, tell us about Superior Air Parts. Uh, what is it that you guys do? Okay, Superior Air Parts, we're, we base our company around supplying spare parts for the engines and engines, uh, experimental lycoming engines, copies, um, ranging from 320 uh, through to the 409 cubic inch. Um, so, yeah, that's where we're at. So the Lycoming 320, a very popular engine. I would imagine you do a, a lot of business with that particular uh, model. Yes, we do. Yes, a very popular, very smooth running engine. And uh, you're talking about experimental. You, you were saying uh, before we started here that you're starting to see a bit of a, an increase in business from, from that sector and I guess from the RALs, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, sector as well? Yes, definitely. Um, it's, it's a sector that we're going to put more of our focus onto now. Uh, we're also going to become an aircraft spruce and specialty dealer uh, and be able to offer other lines off to the, the experimental market. And I guess with uh, with so many uh, still Cessna 172s, for example, Piper Warriors, that sort of aircraft around, and of course they're all getting a bit old now, most of them are hailing from the 70s, that sort of thing. Uh, I guess you, you'd be seeing a lot of uh, uh, people looking for engines replacement, engines coming up the time, need replacing, that sort of thing. Yes, we do, and we deal with both factories, like Hayman and Continental for the type certified market we can offer off uh, rebuilt or new exchange engines or outright purchases if they want them 
and uh, we're looking at a, a big uh, difference in price point between, say, going to the original manufacturer and getting an engine. I know that's quite expensive. Uh, I guess uh, looking yep. at someone like you, uh, an aftermarket-type dealer would be a really viable option for people. Yes, it is. Uh, there are some good savings, especially in the experimental engines. You can buy them ready-made, uh, fully test-run, or you can buy them in kit form You can so that you yourself can try and have a go at assembling them, or you can have a local engine shop put them together for you. Um, you, you're talking in the range of twenty-two to twenty-five thousand US dollars. That's a pretty good range, mate. Now uh, I'm aware that Lycoming have done a uh, an aerobatic engine for the light sport air, uh, area. That yeah. you you stock that one? No, we don't stock it. But um, mainly you have to buy those through your kit uh, airframe manufacturer. Okay, yeah. well, that's pretty good. The uh, so it sounds like you're doing quite a bit of work with the engines. Uh, how long has uh, Superior Air Parts been around? Uh, we opened business in 1993 at Archerfield in Brisbane, and then we also opened an office at Auckland uh, in 2010, and we're trying to help that market as well. And I noticed the accent there. You wouldn't have joined oh, yeah. in Auckland, would you? <laughs> Definitely more there. <laughs> but I love living in Australia. How do you see the Kiwi market? We noticed there's been a big upswing there in uh, the training market in particular. Are you seeing uh, more demand for your parts and services over there? Yes, uh, definitely. There's been a lot of training going on, but there have been some regularity changes over there in New Zealand. Student loans are now gone on pilots. So it has cr- created a, a bit of a lull at the moment. But uh, now we're just trying to help the experimental guys. Okay. And uh, so do you see the uh, New Zealand market picking back up again? Like the Australian economy, it's got it's got a little bit of rebuilding to do. Um, so hopefully everyone's gonna, you know, have more expendable m- money for their for their uh, hobbies. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to that happening over here as well. Now, folks, uh, the. Uh We've just had the jet taxi out. We've got the uh, Grumman Mallard come back. I thought he was leaving, but uh, he'd said he was going to be leaving during the morning, but I guess he wanted to do a couple of rides first. He's uh, very noisy. Makes it interesting to do interviews, doesn't it, mate? Yeah, well, we're getting the good big thumbs up from uh, Analog Al, our sound guy, so the microphones are trying to feed out most of it. So, uh, mate, is there anything else you'd like to say while you're here about uh, Superior Air Parts and uh, the work you've got available? Yes, just give us a go, give us a call, come and see us in Hangar 10, the SAAA Hangar. Um, you've got problems, you don't know where to get things, give us a go, we'll try and help you out. Um, yeah, that's that's us. Well, it's a great community spirit here at uh, Osfly. We're seeing with all the aviation community coming together, and uh, it's, it's an opportunity for people to come and talk about their, uh, you know, in your case, uh, mechanical issues, I guess, if they need to. Yes, uh, and if anything's too technical, uh, we've got other... Uh, displayers here that can help, certainly help us but yeah, come come along and we'll try and help no worries and uh, have you got a uh, presence on the internet yes we do we've just got a website where we're looking at getting making our website interactive and uh, we'll be getting onto facebook and twitter shortly too Oh, no worries. Facebook and Twitter is absolutely where it's at. Well, uh, Rob, it's been great to have you come over here and have a chat to us. Wish you every success and uh, hopefully we'll see you back here again at Osfly 2014. Thank you very much, Steve. And we're here with uh, Anton Meyer from Aerosport Aviation all the way over from New Zealand. Anton, uh, welcome back. A regular uh, participant here on the air show uh, scene of late. Yeah, we are. We're um, certainly well placed in Australia as we are in New Zealand. We've got support centres, of course, right throughout Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and WA. And uh, It's a big market. Mm. 
Fantastic, and uh, always uh, great to see you, and always show great enthusiasm for aviation, which is you know what it's all about, isn't it, mate? Well, I do it myself. Yeah, you know, and and I don't expect anything less from my customers. Absolutely. Well, speaking of customers, you're here to uh, talk about the Sport Cruiser aircraft, a beautiful aircraft, a very successful type since its introduction, and uh, you've been doing great things with that aircraft. We have done. Yes, we've got just on 600 in the world fleet now, and um, we're just about to roll out uh, November 10 is the new model, the new Triton Sport, and. Uh, um, we've built a whole new factory at 10,000 square metres. Every machine is brand new. We, can, we do the whole lot inboard, and that's about a $30 million investment. Um, and we're gearing up for one a day of the new Triton, and the spec has gone way up on the Sport Cruiser and the price has come down. Well, a real bonus, mate. And, uh, of course, the Sport Cruiser sets the bar very high as it is. So uh, can you tell us about some of the changes with the Triton? Uh, yes. Um, standard is going to be the IS fuel-injected Rotax. Standard is twin Dynon Skyviews. Standard is Recaro race seats. Sparco four-point race harnesses. There's new ailerons. There's new cowlings. Uh, the aircraft's two inches longer. Um, new canopy. The the whole aircraft is now tool perfect. We make a firewall in three seconds now. Wow. Yeah, that's the level of sophistication and machinery that we've got in the new factory. Well, it really speaks to the success of the type, doesn't it? I mean, when it came in here, and I know Piper had some involvement with it for a while, but they've gone back out on their own now, and um, obviously uh, it's been, you know, they've got a good business model and, and a product that speaks for itself. Exactly, and this is the next step of the evolution of the Sport Cruiser. It's a fabulous aircraft, and um, I think we've at the factory we've got over 50 on order already, and we haven't even rolled out the first one yet. Right, and where is the factory? It's over in uh, Europe somewhere? No, no. Complete new concern, American-owned, American-run, and all-American hardware, and it's straight across the water from Hong Kong and China. No, well, there you go, there you go. So the Chinese then throwing more dollars in. I'm, I'm glad to see and, they've got the dollars at the moment. It's good. Yeah, and in fact, it's right next door to uh, to Cirrus's head office. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, uh, your operation here in Australia and in New Zealand, can you tell us, uh, you know, the people here at Ausfly uh, a bit about uh, your operation, what you do, the uh, parts and support service that you uh, Yeah, it's like a three-day service for parts. Um, fortunately, uh, time has proven itself with the Sport Cruiser and going through into the Triton that we basically don't need any parts. It's just the odd few, and we hold those in stock, and we also hold some stock over here too. So it's, it's a three-day courier service. No problem. Now, of course, uh, you're yourself based over there in New Zealand. You and I have... Uh, done a few interviews before, mate, and we always talk about the fantastic flying that there is to be had over there in uh, in New Zealand. Tell us a bit about that. Ah, uh, look, we'd l- we really enjoy having some of our customers come over and stay with us. We have our own private air park with accommodation, and the flying... Uh, it's so interesting with the mountains, the lakes, the uh, the sea. It's it's all just right there, a very close proximity. And then, of course, you know we've got the Southern Alps to go flying around, and they're all nine and ten thousand footers. Um, it's it's amazing flying, and we welcome any of our customers to come over flying with us. It's only a short trip, isn't it? You can fly over there in any airline. It's it's probably cheaper to fly to New Zealand than it is to fly from here to Perth. Absolutely, absolutely. The other thing that we've uh, got, got happening with Aerosport too is the. Um, is the Roco is um, back out there again? We've we've just sold four of those in Australia. Um, and we've got a, some in production and on the way. And the um, there's a lot happening in Europe, which uh, a lot of 
customers don't realise what's going on behind the scenes with small manufacturers. Uh, for example, the Bristel is a uh, direct copy of the Roco, and it's a very, very small factory with two workers, uh, and that's being sued by Roco. Um, we've got the exactly the same uh, aircraft, so um, yeah, there's there's a lot going out there, and I think readers of magazines have to be very careful what they're reading, and they need to do their homework very well because it's a case of buyer beware on any aircraft. You've got to do your homework. Absolutely, I think that's the case. Even if you're, uh, as I have been lately, uh, you know, I hope my wife's not listening to this. Looking at uh, <laughs> uh, looking at aircraft purchases, and even at some of the older aircraft, like I've been looking at, very, very important to make sure that it gets inspected properly. And uh, you know, as you say, do your homework. Yes, yes. Aging aircraft is a growing concern. Uh, there's been conferences in New Zealand and Australia about this, um, and a lot of those people are looking to go the LSA way, and. That's great, but please do your homework and go with a reputable manufacturer. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you talk about the smaller manufacturers popping up everywhere. It's interesting with the uh, the continued growth of the LSA sector, the RAOS sector, I guess, over here in Australia. Um, there are a lot of smaller manufacturers popping up everywhere, and I guess that's uh, an interesting part of it. But uh, I guess uh, as long as they're using uh, common engines, which seem to be, you see a lot of mm-hmm. Rotex engines around, for example, the Rotex 9212, very popular. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's that's something you can look in, at least if you've got, uh, you know, uh, well established brands and componentry going into yeah. those aircraft that's part of the battle one mm. yeah we're um, we are seeing a lot of them pop up but uh, FAA recently did a spot check on 30 LSA manufacturers and only four of them were compliant to produce an LSA aircraft right. it's not just the aircraft it's everything else <laughs> Anton uh, as I say we, we always bump into you at air shows around the place we've seen you at uh, Avalon this year we've seen you at Natfly it's always great to see you here where can we find you online uh, at, uh, aerosport.co.nz www.aerosport.co.nz Anton Meyer it's great to catch up with you again mate and I guess we'll see you at the next event thanks guys and keep up the good work no worries mate and I've got Russell Middleton here from Atlas Aviation Australia. Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. Russell, can you tell us a bit about uh, Atlas Aviation and the Sky Leader? Well, Atlas Aviation was formed uh, about six months ago, um, and we're importing the Sky Leader range of aircraft uh, built by the Javelin factory, Javelin, and in uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, we've so far only got the 500 in, and that's the one that's flying around in the circuit at the moment. Um, they do have a few different uh, different ranges. They have the Sky Leader 100, which is a single seat, and that can be bought as a kit. Uh, Sky Leader 200, which is a lightweight. Uh, they're the 500. And, and we're just, the Sky Leader 600. And we've is, just got the beautiful sound of the Grumman Mallard taking off. He's going to get off eventually. So, Russell, quite the range of aircraft from Sky Leader. Yeah, there's um, the two that uh, are probably the ones for training would be the 500 and the GP, which is a little low-wing uh, composite. All the rest are all metal. And probably the most luxury one of them is the Skyleader 600, which has a 50-inch cockpit, a fairly wide cockpit, oh. as people would know. Even I could get in that twice. <laughs> yeah, three times maybe. It's, uh, no, it's really big. It's uh, a great aircraft, very stable in the air and very, very simple to fly. Okay. So uh, how long has uh, Atlas Aviation Australia been in existence? Well, as I said, we only formed six months ago, and we've just started with the Skyleader uh, 500. And we hope to have um, possibly a 600 in the next few months and a, uh, a 400 following that and some GPs in the school as well. So we're just in the building process at this stage. Getting much interest? 
Yeah, a lot of interest at this is our first show. Obviously, we've only had in the uh, the first aircraft's only been in for two months, so we've really done eighty hours on it. So it's doing some work. So it's good. <laughs> excellent. Now I noticed a little bit of an accent there, Russell. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, your aviation background and where you're from? Yeah, my aviation background comes from uh, it's basically in the family. Um, I had a, a grandfather that was in the First World War and uncles in the Second World War. My dad had an aircraft from the time that I was eight years old, so yeah, I've basically been in the air since I was a little tyke and uh, did a lot of practice with uh, both my uncle and, and father who basically trained me in the days in Africa when uh, we're from Zimbabwe. Uh, rules were a little bit more laxed. Um, <laughs> I think the first time I got on my controls on my own, I was about 10 years old, so nice. yeah, I've been in it for a while. Excellent. So what kind of prices are we looking at for the uh, Skyleader and uh, what, what kind of uh, performance are we looking at getting? Okay, well, the 500 that we've got here at the moment, it's listed cruise speed is uh, uh, 116 knots. Um, it, uh, it, it varies a bit on the, uh, on the type of prop that you, you choose, but the, the top of the range prop will give you 116 knots. The one that we've got on at the moment is Wood Comp, which is a cheaper version of, of the three uh, types, and it's getting about 108 knots. Um, the stall speed comes back uh, with the file of flaps, which we've got on this one, comes right back to 28 knots, so it's quite a big range, yeah. Oh, it's pretty good in the uh, slow speed range, so not bad for uh, doing some photography and so on? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, it is a low wing, uh, so, and you can't open the canopy, but uh, you could put photography um, windows in it if you wanted okay. to do that. Um, yeah, and it's, it comes in, in LSA. They are doing a um, EU type cert for it, so once that gets through, uh, we'll be able to bring it in as a type certified aircraft. Okay. Um, but at the moment, it's LSA. You can go, go either GA, uh, a, a VH registered or within RAA. Okay, and with a slow stall speed like that, I guess it doesn't take much of a ground run when it decides to come back to Earth. No, it doesn't. Actually, If it's uh, this is it coming in now on final, and uh, if people watch it, you'll find it lands pretty pretty slowly. Okay. And uh, what kind of price are you, ballpark are you looking at for the unit? Okay, they started around about... Uh, the GP uh, retail is about 99000 plus GST. Uh, that's the cheapest one. Well, that's the cheapest two-seat one. That the kit is obviously a lot cheaper than that. The one that you see flying at the moment is about 126 uh, landed in Australia, plus GST. And you can see the guy's flaring a bit early, but uh, she's slowing right down there. there very, it goes. very slow as it comes in. And whereabouts are you located in the static area? Uh, we um, up in Maribor, Queensland, just north of Brisbane. Um, it's about, uh, I think, about 150 k's north of Brisbane. Okay. Um, Maribor's got a nice airport, uh, Harvey Bay just down the road, so if anybody ever wants to come visit, Excellent. please feel free. Nice place to be. And, and here at Ozfly, whereabouts can they find you? Uh, we've got a trade stand just around in the trade exhibit area for, under Atlas Aviation, and you can see the Skyleader on, on display when it comes, once it gets back in again. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to say, Russell? No, that's all, Matt. Th- thanks very much for your time. Okay, no worries. Thanks very much for coming on the show. It's still a beautiful day here at Ozfly 2013. Blue skies, not much in the way of clouds, and a ramp that's really filling up with quite a range of aircraft. We've got everything from ultralights, we've got trikes, we've got uh, gyrocopters, we've got twins, we've got large uh, amphibians, and we've even got a couple of jets here. And uh, speaking of jets and jet jockeys, I've got a couple of gentlemen here. Stephen Gale, welcome to the show. Thank you, Grant. And uh, your name, sir? Willie. Willie? Not, it's called Godfather. Okay, <laughs> Willie the Godfather, excellent. Stephen and Willie, you've uh, been flying around here the last couple of days in the Sia Marchetti S211 jet, ex-Republic uh, of Singapore, I believe. That's the one. It used to be uh, Willie's old plane and now it's mine. So uh, how did you manage to prize it from Willie's hands? 
Uh, they just wouldn't let him fly it anymore. And uh, when um, when Willie wasn't allowed to, well, someone had to step up, and that was me. But he was kind enough to show me how. Okay. Yeah, then I have to bet him to let me fly on the back seat to come to us fly. Thank <laughs> you, Stephen. <laughs> beg, beg, beg. <laughs> uh, okay, so Stephen, uh, for you, how was the conversion to get used to flying this? It was surprisingly easy. Um, people would kill me for saying this, but it's possibly easier to fly than a Cessna. A little bit faster, definitely, and maybe that takes some getting used to. But in terms of handling and all of those sorts of things, it is a very, very simple plane to fly. So what did you fly on beforehand? Uh, Mostly, uh, I have a Mooney as well, and uh, it's a a love-hate relationship which I have with that aircraft, but uh, a a little bit of love anyway. Okay. And uh, so no previous turbine time, you just went straight into it? No, and uh, for anyone that's contemplating a turbine, you can just uh, don't have to worry about a whole lot of things that are relevant to pistons. Okay. One one stick wonder, just push it forward and away you go. It's fantastic, yep. Okay. Now, Willie, you're uh, current or ex-Republic Singapore Air Force? Yeah, I retired from the Singapore Air Force about 10 years ago. After flying the jet for the last 30, 40 years, they say, oh, that's the end of my flying career in the jet. And... Four years later, somebody hunted me down, said, hey, I got this jet again for you to fly. Say, why not? And that's how I started flying the S211 again. Sounds like a lot of arm twisting went on. Not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Willie, how did you get into the Republic of Singapore's Air Force? Oh, I'm a Singaporean. We, uh, I mean, we came to Australia in 1993 when we moved our flying training school to Pierce Air Base in uh, Bosbrook, Western Australia. Were you? Okay. I, yeah, I came there. Willie, were then, you originally a T-Waller? Was that what it was? Or T-Waller? That's, that was the where the selection for the Singapore Air Force came from, wasn't it? The, uh, Tamworth, no. <laughs> uh, Tamworth is an air no, no, no. T-Waller, T- you know, the guy that makes the T. That was before you were in the Air Force. <laughs> oh, they're, they're on the ball today, I tell you, these yeah. two. Then, then I retired 2004, then I continued to live yeah. in Perth until now. So, uh, as you can tell, folks, it's probably pretty interesting up there with these two Charlies in the cockpit. But um, So the question I've got for you, Willie, is uh, the uh, was this the intro aircraft? Uh, this actually is a basic trainer. Actually, uh, uh, a lot of Air Force actually use this to train their pilot or select the pilot, but obviously it's not very cost-effective. And now most of the time, mo- most of Air Force, they use a CT4 to do the air grading like in Tamworth. It's similar for Singapore Air Force, and I think it's similar for RAF also for the selection. Okay, so you you went from the CT4 to the S211. What else have you flown? Oh, no, I'm an old dinosaur pilot. I started with 172, and then I fly Stripe Master straight away, and then okay. I go to the Hunter, UK, yep. Hunter training, and I was a Hunter fighter pilot for a while, and then become instructor. Cool. And how is the Hunter to fly? I think there's still oh, one or two flying yeah, in the world. Yeah, there's still one or two. They are superb aircraft. Excellent, excellent. If I can own one. <laughs> <laughs> And how long did it take you to train Stephen to fly this one? Did you have to hit him around the head much? Uh, surprisingly, it's not. I, I plan a <laughs> syllabus about 10 hours. But most of pilots, uh, they take about five to six hours to get qualified on this aircraft. Okay. Stephen, um, so you did the conversion. You're now flying this around. Uh, what's, it, what's it, like how thirsty is it? What's it cost to operate? 
That's a popular question, and I'd really rather we talked about something else, please. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just in case she who must be obeyed is listening and hears how much money go, really goes into flying this thing. That's cool. Okay, okay. I'll fess up. When we are in a cruise, it's around about uh, 300 litres per hour, and that's... Uh, which sort of makes some people's knees go a little bit weak. But uh, there's a gentleman just coming up that would probably be able to manage that, I'd, I'd suspect. But uh, at least at, at that uh, fuel flow, we're getting about 300 knots, so it's not too bad. Okay. And uh, what uh, altitudes are you normally cruising at? If we've got uh, oxygen on board, we might go up into the 30s. Uh, okay. The plane can go to 42,000, but um, without oxygen, we find... Uh, 21,000, 23,000, quite comfortable. Okay. Anything else you'd like to say about the aircraft and what you're doing with it? It's, uh, it's a very, very nice aircraft. It, uh, I feel extremely privileged to be able to fly it around. Cool. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Willie. Appreciate you both coming on. You're welcome. Thank now, you. Now, uh, we're just about to hand over the microphone to uh, the lovely Miss Jody here. Jody from Sky Thrills, who's wearing an S211 uh, uh, jumpsuit here. Thanks, Willie. Now, uh, Jody, uh, you, uh, I believe you actually uh, got to go fly in this aircraft. Yes, I did. I was very, very lucky, and uh, Stephen offered to take me up. Stephen and I did our formation endorsements together a few months ago, and we were the lumpfish formation. So uh, <laughs> he was lumpfish one, and I was lumpfish two, and, and that's why he's uh, offered me the privilege to um, go up with him today. And how was it? Oh, it was amazing. It's like nothing I've ever flown before or, you know, even been seen? in. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Cool. Have you ever been in a jet before? No, that's the first jet I've ever been in, and it'll probably be the only one I ever get to go in. <laughs> oh, you never know. You like other things may come along. Oh, there we go. Stephen's just saying it'll happen again. I think he's going to need a need a Rio once again. So, what kind of manoeuvres were you pulling? Oh, Stephen was showing me what its um, characteristics are like in uh, wing over, and um, we're just doing barrel rolls and. Uh, what else did he show me? He pulled the um, thrust back to zero and just showed me what the the characteristics are like when it um, does have an engine failure. And yeah, it was it was very interesting. It was um, a bit like a normal aircraft, a bit of a non-event, which was good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so uh, you managed to hold it all together. You didn't didn't uh, you know do too many crazy gestures, dead <laughs> moments? No, thankfully, being an aerobatic pilot myself, I didn't lose my cookies and embarrass myself. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Anything else you'd like to say about the ride? No, just absolutely amazing. Um, I'm just, yeah, very privileged that I got the chance to go in one. Jody, thanks very much for coming on and talking about your flight in the uh, CMI Kitty. Cheers, Grant. Okay. <laughs> it's Fast Eddie from EAA Radio Air Venture Oshkosh here. When I'm not in the EAA Radio Studios... I'm dreaming of being over there at Ausfly. Have fun, guys, and fly safe. Good day, mates. We're going to talk about Zenair Australia and uh, their aircraft, the Zenith. And uh, what's your name, sir? Yeah, Alan Barton. I've been the Zenith dealer for the last three years in Australia. Okay. And uh, now that's Zenair Australia for Zenith aircraft from the USA. That's correct, yeah. We import the kits with the Australian distributor for the kits from the uh, all the Zenith range of aircraft. Okay. And what aircraft have you got for us here today? Today over at the uh, Zenith stand, we've got the uh, CH750 Stoll version, which is the bright yellow aircraft that's over there, and also we've got a 601 that's been modified up to the, the 650, okay. which is the low wing. Excellent. And uh, what what kind of category, like how, how kind of uh, performance are we looking at with the Zenith? Uh, with the uh, 650 is a cruise plane doing 110 knots on a Rotax aircraft engine, 100 horsepower. 
you can put the Jabiru engine, you can put the UL power engine. There's also auto conversions like the Honda Viking. It's a full range of engines. They're doing around 100, 110 knots. The high wing style aircraft is doing 75 knots, but it's a stole performance. Flies level flight also at 30 knots and land on very small. The newest one coming out, which they've released, is the 750 Cruiser, which is a, they've made it. 750 body, more aerodynamic, and they're doing 100 knots, and it's a cruise aircraft, not an off-the-field aircraft as such. Fantastic. So about how uh, how much are we looking at to buy these aircraft in general? To buy the kits, depending on the dollar, the US dollar, is about 25000 for the kits. Finished up, you'll spend about sixty over your two to three years build time. Okay. And uh, I understand there's uh, something else that uh, Zenair Australia have for us. Yes, in Australia is also the proud owners of coming spinners. Been doing the both, and we've now released a new spinner for the RV range, which fits the Hartzell constant speed prop. It's a kit which can put an alloy in your spinner on the front of your RV. That's a pretty good name for it, Cummings Spinners. That's actually where it came from, actually. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know, uh, for your non-Australians who are listening in on the uh, on the internet feed, that's a uh, Cummings Spinner is a bit of a phrase used in the uh, game of two-up, a, uh, a bit of a gambling game that was very common uh, back in the World War One in the trenches and is still to this day in the RSLs, I believe. Yes, it is. It's still being played now. Every Anzac day, the police turn a blind eye for open gambling. I've <laughs> <laughs> uh, got to have that. Mate, anything else you'd like to tell us while you're here? Oh, it's just been a great event. The weather's certainly turned on today. And um, sure, look, come over and have a look at the aircraft. We certainly take people up for flights in other 750 or the 650 as well. Okay, and whereabouts can people find you? We're over on the uh, grass in front of next to the air van, just behind the Australian Gippsland air, air van. And that's where behind there, and you can't miss the bright big yellow plane. Okay, and speaking of aircraft you can't miss, here goes the Mallard beating up the, the uh, track once again. It's big, it's high, it's allowed. It is. <laughs> they didn't offer flight, so disappointing. <laughs> yeah, no, he's actually leaving. He's just doing a couple of passes and heading for home. Oh, it's a way to go. <laughs> definitely. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And definitely, folks, Analog Al is fiddling the knobs and doing a wonderful job there in the studio, trying to make us sound professional, despite my best efforts. Now, folks, we're joined at the moment by Diane from Punkin Head Air Sports. Diane, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under and Ozfly Radio. Thank you, Grant, and thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. Now, can you tell us a little bit about Punkin? It sounds like pumpkin, but not quite. Well, basically, Punkin Head Air Sports, the logo is a punk pumpkin. So that's why it's P-U-N-K. Right. And just to be different. And it's something that people remember, and particularly the logo they remember. Yeah, a little punk punk pumpkin with wings. That's the (laughs) one. We make aircraft covers and accessories for aircraft. So basically anything in the textile line, that's what we do. So plain pyjamas, whether it's a full set of covers covering wingtip to wingtip, nose to tail and prop and spinner, or just a small canopy cover or cabin cover, whatever you need, lightweight, heavyweight or somewhere in the middle, we do it. Lots of sewing and lots of assembly, yeah? That is correct. We do all the sewing in Yarrawonga. We are an Australian business and we employ Australians doing the work and that also means that if you have any problem with your cover, if it accidentally gets torn, just give me a call and we fix it for you. Well, that is fantastic. Supporting uh, Australian jobs, that's that's a fantastic thing. A good theme here for uh, Ozfly in particular. Absolutely. That's what it's all about. Now, a lot of people wouldn't think about it, I suppose. It's very important when you've got a a rather uh, pricey investment as an aircraft is and, uh, you know, obviously keeping it out of the elements if you can't put it in a hangar is uh, something people need to think about. That is the issue these days. Hangarage is of a premium and a lot of people cannot manage to get it. So spending a certain amount of money on covers to protect your expensive investment while you're waiting for a hangar or just deciding that, okay, I can't get one, it's when you 
balance the cost out over the years that you're going to have it outside and how much the aircraft costs, it's neg- negligible. Yeah, no, it's totally, totally a good thing to have. And uh, so what kind of aircraft have you done covers for? Okay, I have covered uh, Yaks, Nanchangs, lots of Jabiroos, plenty of RVs. Um, do you reckon you could do a cover for a citation like that? I could do a cover for a citation if I needed. <laughs> Mind you, I do draw the line at 747s. <laughs> yeah, some, sometimes there's just got to be a limit, right? Absolutely. But, I mean, a lot of the aircraft around here have covered Foxbats, the Zenair aircraft, the full range there, Brumbies, um, quite a range. Excellent. Now, do you work from, uh, do, from the plans of the aircraft? Do you get the specifications? Or do you actually... Well, we'll just hold for a sec while they shut down. I think this is Dick Smith arriving. I think we need to cover those engines up, Brenda. <laughs> I have done intake covers. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a good one to know. Like the little plugs that you put in? I definitely do um, cow plugs, um, all sorts of covers to prevent birds getting in. At the moment, also, if you come and look at my stand, I've actually got ducks and chickens as cow plugs. Oh, great. <laughs> I've seen some interesting ones, but that sounds fantastic. But well, it's different. Do, do you actually work from a uh, from the specs of the aircraft? Do you go and download the sizes, or do people have to measure for you? No, what I do is I actually measure the aircraft myself, particularly for shaped aircraft like the, the RANS aircraft, all the RVs with their curved canopies. I need to actually make a fabric pattern to yep. get the curves right. Okay. Um, I think I'd probably have too much stress and heart failure trying to do it just from specs. <laughs> so, so will you actually come to the aircraft or do they bring it to you? Depending on where it is, we're actually on Yarrawonga Aerodrome, so if it's convenient for the people to come to us, they come in and pull their nose in the hangar and yep. we make the pattern up there and then if they want, they can fly back and pick it up or we mail it to them. Yep. Otherwise, I make the most of coming here to Ausflight Narromine to measure up aircraft if it's one I don't have a pattern for or alternatively Natflight Tamora. Okay, and uh, how long does it take you to make that pattern while it's visiting? Is it pretty quick? Generally, just for a bit of ease, about half an hour to do a canopy or a cabin cover and uh, an hour to an hour and a half if I'm having to do a full aeroplane. Do you find that uh, once you've made a cover, you can uh, repeat, use it again? Yes, generally once I've covered the aeroplane, as long as there's no major differences, like life can be fun when people decide to put a different canopy on it. Yep. (laughs) But mostly if it's a standard aeroplane... Um, I can just use that same pattern. People just ring up and say, I've got a, an RV7, I want to get a full set of covers for it. And I said, not a problem. Okay, I just check what their intake, their cowling's like towards their intake there, and then I can just make the covers up straight from the patterns I have. That's fantastic. Now we're talking here about, uh, you know, obviously you're doing all the work here in Australia, which is fantastic. Are you finding uh, much in the way of export orders? I've got an order going to the UK very soon. I have had orders in the past going to America, uh, mainly in the ultralight field, and I have had some orders going to South Africa. Africa. So, yes, I do have a certain degree of export. That's that's great. I, I, I imagine it must make it a bit difficult, though, to get to the aircraft and do a check if it's a custom one. Uh, yeah, well, basically, if it's a custom one, unless they want to fly to Australia, we're in trouble. Well, I think they should fly you to the UK to measure it up. That would be very acceptable if they cared to pay my costs. I would love to no, go. There you go. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say while you're here with us? Uh, apart from just come and have a look at our stall, we've got lots of interesting different things from propeller and spinner backpacks to wind socks and um, the, the duck bungs. Sounds great. Come and have a look, and if you need a cover, come and look me up. No worries, we might sign off here. Where can we find you on the internet, or can we find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet at www.punkin, with an N, 
Huncanheadair.com.au. No worries. So before this jet, next jet drowns us out, we'll say thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome back to the interview point, and we're here with uh, Michael Coates from Pipistrel, amongst many other companies. Michael, welcome. Good morning. How are you? Oh, very well. Lovely day here for a uh, for an air display, as the uh, cliche goes. Yeah, much better than yesterday. We've got uh, great weather now. Now we'll talk about uh, Pipistrel aircraft, a really uh, unique looking aircraft. And uh, how is that? Uh, how's your involvement with that? How did that come about? Um, I've been with Pipistrel since two thousand and one. Um, they're a small country, a company at the time, based in Europe, and. Uh, when I started my involvement with them, we were producing serial numbers under well under 50, and uh, now we're, we're up in the 600 range. So my involvement has been uh, long-term. I also uh, not only look after Australia and New Zealand, but also the USA market for Pipistrel. The USA market as well, that's interesting. And that's, you're seeing a lot of interest over there with the economy yes. the way it is? Yeah, even though it's you know, the global financial crisis and everything else, the Pipistrel aircraft are really economical to uh, use and operate, and that seems to attract a lot of people to uh, the, that brand purely because of its economy. I think that's one of the, the real uh, interesting factors, isn't it, about uh, the modern aircraft. You see a lot of these uh, LSA, if you're in the US, or RAS-type aircraft here, the the advances in design technology, the increases in aerodynamic efficiency, it really is uh, something that speaks for itself when you're the one shelling out the dollars. That's right. We've got to, uh, you know, when you're designing an LSA for the USA market, as an example, you've got a weight limit and also a uh, generally a power limit because if you get to too many horsepower, you become too heavy. So uh, it's a matter of designing the aircraft to be efficient and easy to operate and, most importantly, safe to fly. And most of the LSA aircraft out there uh, tick those three boxes, which is great news. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the few times that I fly in that category of aircraft, it, it always uh, really speaks to me how easy these aircraft are to fly, how much you know, how much more a one you can be so quickly with that aircraft. Yeah, they're... they're they're made to be easy to fly. If they were difficult, then um, you'd have too many accidents, and that's something we uh, we want to avoid. Well, we want to make it a selling point for the training market. I mean, if we can make it, you know, we need to make it as attractive as possible in these times to get more people yeah. to fly. And if they get into a modern aircraft such as the Pipistrel, they see a nice modern design, a nice uh, clean layout, and it's easy to fly, and that's uh, really attractive for people. Well, we have a specific model called the Pipistrel Alpha Trainer. It comes into the US at about 85,000, um, brand new, ready to go, and that's radio training transponder, GPS, ballistic parachute. So it's a real exciting aircraft for their market. Unfortunately, by the time we have a bit more freight to get it to Australia and add the dreaded GST to it, we get over the the $100,000 mark, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, they're still good value and, and ideal for training. Still in all, $100,000 for a brand-new aircraft, is that's that's good value these days. It is. It's you know, A lot of planes are getting up to the 160s, 170s, and we also sell aircraft that, that fit that category. Uh, Virus SW just took off a few moments ago to head back to the Gold Coast, and that uh, is interesting because it's got zero one on the tail in big numbers, and that was the first ever Rotax fuel-injected um, aircraft engine to fly in the world. That's fantastic. Well, tell us a bit about the uh, the model range, the model range of the Pipistrel, besides that one you just mentioned. Well, we start off with the Pipistrel Alpha. Then we go into um, the next most popular one is the Virus SW, which stands for short wing, which is the one that's just taken off. Uh, we also have uh, several other models. We have a single-seat glider, which is self-launch, either petrol or electric. We have a two-seat side-by-side glider, 40-to-1 uh, glide ratio, also in petrol or electric. Um, we then have other models which are Rotax powered with a 50 foot wingspan, 15 metre, uh, which are designed to take off and climb and switch the engine off, feather the propeller and soar around. 
Some fascinating work being done by Pipistrel. We're always hearing about them in the news about how they're breaking new uh, new ground and uh, leading the way on the, yep. uh, the zero emission and low emission front. Uh, saw some very funky looking designs at Oshkosh a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that seem to now be coming to fruition. Uh, any idea what's next and coming up with Pipistrel in the future? Oh, I could tell you, but I have to kill you. <laughs> I knew there was a catch. <laughs> no, I, no, I was we, hoping we could get one past them. What we're, what we're working on at the moment, and it's no secret, is the Pipistrel Alpha Trainer in electric version. Um, we're going to release that to the, uh, to the public um, probably around February to March. Um, at the moment, they've got it working uh, fully electrically with two hours cruise endurance, um, which is really, really good. We're trying to get it to two and a half hours before we release it because then it, you know, it has the ability to do 250-mile legs. It's designed not as a private aircraft for touring but more for the training market. So uh, while it uses electricity for takeoff and climb, the propeller basically windmills as it comes into uh, the circuit to glide and land and that regenerates some of the power back into the batteries. In that type of environment, we're looking at a three-hour endurance at the moment um, as it as it pre- presently sits, and that's uh, more than enough for a, a training lesson. And they're working now on the uh, battery swap out. There's a special cart, uh, which is just a it's like a a, glo- a really small electric forklift, I guess is the word, and that can swap the batteries out within probably two minutes. So that's great. You come back down from your training, they've swapped that one, the first battery pack's in being recharged while the next student's out there because typically you get this, they don't go up as soon as they land. They land, you've generally got up to anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes between uh, flights. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the other thing is it's a total solution because Pipistrel will also be supplying that aircraft with a 1.5 kilowatt solar panel package. So uh, you can be nice. recharging the batteries uh, that are on the ground while you're up flying. Um, and then when you come down, you can swap them over you can recharge the aircraft directly so if you're in the hangar just plug the plane into the solar panels you can also plug it into the mains electricity but really there's no need to no that's great well when you're looking at avgas at what two two dollars plus a litre now 250 a litre i guess uh, in the training market in particular that would have be very attractive particularly for bigger schools i'm thinking well your biggest expense then is really going to be tyres yep. and tyres and that type of aircraft in training are lasting 200 hours so, you know, the, there's really no fuel to put into it. You may occasionally, if you've got bad weather, uh, plug it into the main supply. But, um, you know, at best you're going to use a dollar a charge at the absolute most. And the U.S. is paying half the price we are for electricity, so even less. Well, that's all pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, mate, is there anything else you'd like to let us know about Pipistrel and what you're doing? Well, they've done, uh, they've done a couple of things, not just involved in aviation. They've been working lately, um, would you believe, on push bikes. They've got the, the fastest pedal-powered push bike in the world. Amazing. Yeah, they can do, would you believe, just on pedal power because they've designed all the aerodynamics for it, so it's a fully fared bike. They're doing 87 kilometres an hour on pedal power. So you strap a wingsuit to the uh, guy riding the bike. Oh, and unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, that's, that's going faster than the right flyer was, replica was this morning, I can tell you that. That was good to watch too, wasn't it? Absolutely fascinating. I was out there with, uh, with uh, the guys on one of the chase vehicles. And oh, you would awesome. have heard it. Yeah, we were looking from a distance, but, uh, yeah, it looked uh, very scary on rotation and then it just settled down and, and went the length of the runway and landed quite nicely. It was it was really enjoyable to watch. Definitely. <laughs> hey Michael Lee, you also uh, have another company here XCOM Avionics. We should talk about that rather quickly. Yeah. Yeah, well, XCOM's an Australian company. We started that about eight years ago uh, by designing a VHF radio. Um, low power consumption made for ultralights, light sport and gliders. Um, since that time we've sold over 6,000. 
Um, our biggest market is the US, of course, because there's more planes there than anywhere else, but it's a very successful product. Excellent. Well, I can uh, vouch for XCOM headsets. You sold me one recently this year, and uh, I highly recommend it. Very comfortable headset. Yep, they're good. They work. Uh, good warranty. We never have any issues. We've moved about uh, 4,500 of those, so there's a lot of them out there. No worries, mate. And where can we find you on the internet if people are looking for you? Um, XCOM is just XCOMavionics.com. Um, Pipistrel is PipistrelUSA.com. And uh, our main website is MCP, which you'll remember if you remember the initials for male chauvinist pig. Even though it doesn't stand for that, it's easy to remember. .com.au. No worries. Michael Coach, thanks very much for spending some time with us. My pleasure. Thank you. And we're back once again in the sunshine, slowly cooking, enjoying, but the winds are picking up. Expected to be about 10 knots today in the southwest, so coming out from the southwest. But uh, right now here in the commentary area, we're joined by David Badams. David from Snow Goose, welcome aboard. Good to see you. What a lovely day. Absolutely. Now, uh, we had the pleasure of having a quick chat with your lovely partner in crime um, yesterday morning, and uh, she was telling us a little bit about uh, what Snow Goose does. Would you let us know? Well, we're a, a service provision company. Uh, my uh, primary aim is to do as many ferry flights as I can because I quite enjoy that. But we'll uh, we'll look to helping any aviation enthusiast achieve their dream. Now, I understand that you're uh, pretty good at hunting down hard-to-find specific aircraft. Yeah, I reckon we can sort of specialise in that. We, uh, Other than the normal internet searches, we've got some pretty good contacts out there in the industry. And if somebody wants something, we're going to find it. I heard uh, that uh, you had to go and find the particular air truck that was used in Mad Max 3. Well, we didn't actually find the Mad Max 3 uh, air truck. But, um, yeah, an American customer was very focused on having one for his display circuit, and we found one in Tasmania. Fantastic. Now, some big questions. Ferry flights from one side of the world to the other, long duration, lots of water, lots of tiger country, all that kind of stuff. How do you keep yourself, like, sane on those long flights? Do you listen to podcasts, for example? We could recommend a few. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you know, I don't know. You become uh, destination-focused, I suppose, and... uh there's always something to do, uh, but there is some. There are, there are some very long and tedious legs, and that's when you dream that your autopilot's going to stay in order. Having spoken to a couple of guys who do the flights, uh, they, they said, oh, we put the autopilot on, read a book, and just look up each page, things like that. Uh, one of them has actually discovered podcasts and has been listening to ours, apparently. But uh, So we just try and keep giving him lots of backlog because he does a lot of ferry flights. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very wise. It's wise to have something to keep you awake or not, as the case may be. Now, I imagine you've done the um, the Pacific quite a number of times? Do you know I haven't? I've been into the Pacific, uh, but my specialty has been uh, between Europe and Australia. Over, Well, you'd think it's overland, but actually the world is covered in water. <laughs> what is a typical route then if you're bringing one down from that part of the world? Uh, depends on the range you can get out of them, but my I tend to go uh, have a stop in France, maybe Malta, then over the other side of the Med. Uh, got to find some way through the Middle East these days. Traditionally, I've gone through Egypt, a little bit harder. Mm. Um, but uh, once you're past Saudi, it's just a straight um, into somewhere like Muscat and then hopping over the water to India. India's always tough. Um, the, the, pro- probably the biggest challenge is getting the clearance over Burma, and then you're really into civilization. Thailand onwards is... Gets a lot easier. Walk in the park. Yeah. So you're sort of following the same route that Hinkler and uh, the guys who opened up the uh, the London to Melbourne types of routes did. Yeah, pretty much. A yeah. um, little easier, I, though. I did a, uh, a, a route one day uh, that sort of followed Kingsford Smith 
which I thought was pretty neat, although I went a lot higher. <laughs> a bit, bit higher, a bit faster, and a bit less hassle, right? Yeah. Well, they say that he was always drunk. I don't know if that's true or not, but he used to stay really low because he was scared of heights. <laughs> so I figure it's just worthwhile popping up. Yeah, I can, I can appreciate I'm actually afraid of heights myself, but I fly hot air balloons. So, yeah. you know, you're standing in a basket that barely covers your bum and at 8,000 feet going, okay, that's a long way down. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to look out and think about how far it will be to fall. But it's only the last bit that hurts, apparently. Yeah, that's just that sudden stop at the end. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, David, I understand also uh, you're going to be flying uh, uh, in with the uh, display team. You've got the uh, formation uh, RV team, the snow goose team. A little formation. David Brown made the call and asked if we could uh, put some RV up he he has this dream if you um if you put in a, a search engine uh, uh, rv formation team you'll find this magnificent mob in america which is fantastic that's what david brown thinks we look like <laughs> that's where he wants you to get He's, yeah. david brown has some amazing dreams and visions and you kind of need that to get to where you where that is going to happen and yeah. yes he is a funny guy is that what you're trying to say <laughs> yeah well, no, because David's not here to beat me up for it, so I don't like to say that. I'd rather say it to his face because then he yeah. can respond. Yeah, and the formation is very simple, and it's um, a couple of former Air Force guys with me. Uh, we're all good mates, and um, we enjoy it. Excellent. And I believe you're flying Dave's uh, RV-10. just His shiny RV-10. Isn't that the nicest RV-10 you've ever seen? Uh, it's absolutely life? beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, I totally thought it was a Cirrus SR-20 when I first saw it. Yeah, me and too. And got close. Yeah. It's uh, it's a nice look. And he very kindly lets me fly it. And he didn't even uh, flinch very much when he was showing me for the first time. The landing might have been a bit firm. What I didn't realize is that the speedo he has reads in miles per hour. Oh. Yeah, apparently you've got to read the knots in the little glass screen that he's got. Yeah, so it uh, went, nope, I'm going to fall out now. It was fine. <laughs> we were nice, watching, nice solid undercarriage. We were watching you as you landed. Uh, David joined us for the commentary during the formation. And he, mm. as you took off, he said, you know, that's the first time that my partner in the aircraft or I have not flown it on takeoff. That poor bastard. I didn't realize that. I must give him a fly in my yak then. Yeah, well, I think what you need to do is give it the drunken farmer look for him. Okay, I can do that too. (laughs) Well, we're just going to talk about uh, perhaps uh, you're doing some interesting things here, but you've had quite an interesting career yourself in aviation, haven't you? I've had a thoroughly enjoyable time. I wish I could do it all again. Yeah, and uh, can you tell us a bit in, in, in a, a brief overview of uh, where you've where you've come from to be standing here? Uh, well, my flying started when I was very young. I uh, have a family. Well, my father and my elder brother were both pilots. One in the air force, one in the navy. I started gliding about fifteen, and then got into the navy myself. In uh, 1978, I flew Skyhawks for the Royal Australian Navy until Bob Hawke came to power. <laughs> and uh, No more HMAS yeah. Melbourne. No, no more ship, no more aeroplanes. Yeah. The Kiwis got them. Uh, but then I really didn't know what to do. The Air Force didn't seem to be offering much for me at that time, so I wrote to the British High Commission. And they, uh, they just had their war down in the Falklands, and they were short of fighter pilots. And that's where I went. We, uh, my wife and I moved over there for five years, we thought, and came back in 1999. So oh. 84 to 99. That's we a long were. five years. Yeah. <laughs> it was very fun, though. We'd love to get you on the podcast one day and talk all about flying Harriers and all that sort of stuff. It'd be fantastic. Well, I was just thinking one of the best things about coming to Ozfly this year was that I wasn't a guest speaker at the, uh, at the dinner tonight. I'm going to be able to sit down and get <laughs> faced. <laughs> I think we've got the same kind of thing happening. We're not required to work there. We're just going to turn up, eat, drink, and be merry. That's me. No problem, mate. Uh, well, uh, time is uh, getting the better of us, but uh, David Batterms, we want to thank you very much for spending some time with us here today. Thank you very much.
pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills. And one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. Do you get sick of your normal friends mocking you because you look up every time an aeroplane is overhead? Only feel you can truly be yourself around other avgeeks? I feel your pain. I'm Stephen Pam and I'm an avgeek. So how can we explain to normal people, or the aerodynamically challenged as I prefer to call them, why we do what we do, or at least show them that there are thousands of others just like us? That's the question I asked myself, and the answer was, go to Oshkosh and interview the most geeky of avgeeks and make it into a doco. It's an epic undertaking and I need your help. Visit airheadsdocumentary.com for details. You're listening to Osfly Radio, thanks to Air Area Fearless and QBA Insurance, Australia's private and sport aviators together under one sky. Ben and I are joined with a couple of uh, distinguished guests. We've got uh, Dick Smith. G'day, Dick. How are you doing? Hi, Grant. Great to be talking to you again. Welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under and to the Ozfly Radio Show. We've also got Ryan Campbell, the man of the moment, just back from his Round the World tour. Great to have you back on the show, Ryan. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, gentlemen, you're both now accomplished Earth Rounders. Uh, Dick, I believe, how many times have you gone around the planet? Uh, five times, actually, by air, and then I drove around once, plus a few times with Qantas. <laughs> the self-loading freight, I'm not sure that counts. But <laughs> and Ryan, you've just completed your first one. Uh, it was only a year ago you were here quite nervously on stage telling us how you were going to do this, and then at Avalon, caught up with you there, and the planning was coming along well, and now you've done it. Yeah, it's all a little bit surreal, but I uh, touched down in Wollongong uh, last Saturday, uh, morning after a two-month, one-week solo flight around the world. And I understand that uh, you had a piece of property that uh, Dick uh, loaned to you for the flight. I did. It was, you know, when this was a surreal kind of uh, out there idea in my head that I didn't really believe could happen, I actually emailed Dick before anyone else. I hadn't even talked to mum or dad. And Dick's support along with Ken Evers, who flew the air van around the world in 2010, that was the support that I needed to, you know, know that I could do this. And then I went to mum and dad and, and uh, asked that question after I did the dishes one night. So um, no, that was really good. Uh, and then as we, you know, as we planned, I had a few meetings with Dick and that included uh, being passed on a, a piece of uh, fabric from the Southern Cross from... Uh, it was actually uh, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith's uh, and your aircraft, obviously. And for me, that was huge. Not only not only to have that and take it with me, but my granddad's first flight, which you know brought aviation into our family, was with Kingsford Smith in the Southern Cross when he was a young boy. Wow. So uh, I had all that there and uh, and took it with me all the way around the world. It was very good to, to take it with me. Uh, that's great. And uh, Dick, how was it when you got an email out of the blue from a young man about flying around the world? Well, I was a bit sceptical, I must admit. I don't think I was quite as positive as Ryan says 
I was because actually what worries me is people who are doing things, especially young. Look, I flew around the world when I was 38 years of age and I found it damn hard and very frightening. And here's someone 19. I mean, obviously, I must have been pretty immature at, at <laughs> 39, wasn't I? To me, it's a, an extraordinary effort of what he's done because solo flying, I've done quite a bit of flying solo and quite a bit with co-pilots. And solo flying is the hardest one because you're by yourself. And sometimes when the, when the weather's good and you've got it on the autopilot, there's nothing better. But flying in at night, I noticed, uh, Ryan, when you cross the Pacific, that huge leg that Kingston Smith did, the first about 2,100 nautical miles, that you landed at night. Is that right on the States? Uh, it was. I took <laughs> off uh, with the idea that I would land in the, the and, you know, kind of at last light, so I had daylight. But 15 hours and, and headwinds. Uh, I did. I arrived about 9 p.m. in Van Nuys. 9, 9 p.m. at Van Nuys, which is a very busy airport. Very. Compared to Australia, we all know that. And to go in there and fly a sophisticated little plane in there and do it perfectly, well, it's a credit to him. Because how many hours was it, by the way? Uh, it was 15. I took off in the dark and yeah. the sun come up in front of me, went over the top and set behind me. <laughs> 15 hours of flying and then to be able to do a competent landing, not bad. Oh, that's pretty fantastic. And We've spoken to a number of people who do uh, long distance ferry flights and so on. We always ask, how do you keep occupied? Now, we know from our chats with you that you are keeping yourself very occupied, checking fuel flows and all that. There must have been times in between, though. You did get a bit of chance to uh, enjoy the view, didn't you? Yeah, there was a, f- a fair few times, depending on the leg, you know, how much fuel did I have and, and what were the conditions and, you know, how was I feeling kind of thing. The long leg there, the 15-hour one, I was worried the whole way. I didn't turn music on. I didn't do anything except fuel calculations literally for about 13 hours. And uh, I got those tailwinds in the end and then I was, uh, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. But on the other legs, um, you know, I flew down from Scotland to uh, Leed in England and, and across the White Cliffs of Dover. So I saw the whole UK in about three hours uh, from about 5,500 feet. That was fantastic so for yeah there was legs where you got to have a look but then there was also legs that you know you were you know concentrating it's interesting uh, three and a half hours or so to go the whole length of the uk and yet you'd still be just in one state here yeah and every ocean of course looking down its water and uh, ryan knows that if you had an engine failure he'd land probably have about one and a half minutes before the plane sinks maybe his little plane might float like slightly more than a chopper but then it was get out the life raft and climb into it and hope that someone comes and rescues you and of course as we fly over a big expanse of water the engine automatically knows it and automatically changes its sound did you did you get that feeling at any points uh, when I went across the Pacific, I got to the other end in, and I was in California. I got onto the phone to my mentor and I said, this overflying, you know, over, over water flying, it's not even that bad. This is great. I didn't even care there was water there. And, and I think that's because I was so busy with so many other things that HF radio is, uh, you know, a thing in its own. When I got to the other side and I started the water crossings back home, I hated it. <laughs> I hated it because I was so uh, much more relaxed with the airplane that, you know, I had more time to think about being over water. The last leg into Broome, 40 miles off the coast, I could see Australian, you know, beaches, which I'd longed to see for a long time. And there was an RFDS jet going in there on a medivac, so they made me orbit 40 miles off the coast in circles. And, um, you know, I didn't enjoy that part of it at all. So. (laughs) So, Ryan, Dick was just mentioning about ditching in the ocean. How much preparation and how many times did you do these cockpit drills to get it ingrained as a muscle memory uh, we had discussions about the Cirrus and the parachute and whether you should pull that over water or not because it you know has a different effect over water than it does on the ground due to the undercarriage and what absorbs what. And uh, So I went through the drill a number of times, but more importantly, I did a, a Westpac helicopter underwater escape training course and learned to swim upside down. And I did that and I learned about the life rafts and everything that I would have to use. That, you know, So 
if I did have to use it there on the day, it wasn't a surprise as to how it actually worked. So you wouldn't have to pull out the instruction sheet? No, not at all. No, it was uh, it was a great course. And then obviously we talked about it a lot with very experienced ferry pilots. And I talked about it with people who uh, had experiences that weren't so good. And in that way, we could learn from their mistakes and not do the same. Now, the two of you are uh, members of the uh, Earthrounders. Dick, I hear you were saying that there's a few other folks have been here today, including one very famous gentleman. There's one very famous person here, Hans Sulstrup, who's the first. Ryan might be the youngest person in the world to fly solo around the world, but Hans is the first Australian to fly solo around the world in a fixed-wing aircraft, and he's floating around somewhere. <laughs> so look for Hans Sulstrup. He also took the first open boat around Australia, and he started those incredible solar vehicle races from Darwin to Adelaide. So he's flake. he flew up with me in the citation this morning and he's here. He's a great Aussie adventurer. He's also, by the way, drove with Larry Perkins from Perth to Sydney, the first solar vehicle across Australia. Plus he's also driven in that incredible V8 race at Bathurst. So oh. he's done a few things. Yeah, so uh, we, yeah, we know Larry Perkins with his Larry logger is very, uh, very famous piece of equipment that. Uh, Absolutely. I believe it's in Matt Hall's aircraft and so on. Now, yeah, Dick, you said you arrived in your citation. Uh, it was very distinctive that, oh, there's a citation. It's got to be Dick Smith. I was sitting in the back. I've just come 21 hours in the uh, in a Qantas aeroplane and arrived this morning. So I decided to sit in the back and be flown up with two of my mates. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice. So, Mr. Ryan, what next? You've, uh, you've got back. Uh, are you going to relax for a while or is it, uh, have you got another plan that you're launching into? Uh, at the moment, we're kind of tying up all the loose ends and, and trying to organise all the you know, all the stuff to just kind of wrap it all up, wrap the world flight up. And then uh, the plan is to start promoting what could be uh, a fantastic schools tour for next year. So we'd love to take the Cirrus around around the world. Uh, it's not my aircraft, so uh, it, you know that may not be achievable. It all depends on what support we can get to, to do that. But what we're doing is uh, trying to, to plan something where we can go around Australia, we can promote to young kids, uh, literally just educate them on what age is it, you know, uh, what age can you fly solo, what age can you get your private or your commercial, how much does it cost, and use... Uh, hopefully my example to show that you can fund it yourself and you can actually do it. It's so achievable. It's just the issue I see is with the lack of a Young Eagles program or something similar here in Australia, we don't educate young kids and we don't, you know, they just don't know the opportunities there. So if we can change that next year, you know, we'll, we'll try and do that. And then uh, after that, I'll uh, get a real job, I think. <laughs> Got to pay the bill somehow. Uh, it's been an amazing year. We've had Dave Jacker become the first quadriplegic to fly solo around the uh, coastline of Australia. Ryan, you've become the youngest man to fly uh, solo around the world. Uh, in fact, on your aircraft, if you look really carefully, it's really tiny, but you'll see plane crazy down under, cast and crew. We joined the 500 Club. And, I understand uh, you were one of the main sponsors behind the scenes. Oh, well, we, we were certainly there going, yay, <laughs> doing all we could to promote. But uh, yeah, there's a little patch on there that says we were here. So I was glad that we were able to be there partway and help go, help you go around. We're looking forward to doing an official uh, catch-up and debrief. Ryan, Dick, thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I'm Fast Eddie. And I'm Digital Dave. And when we're not working at EAA Radio in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, USA... We're listening to Alan fiddling with the knobs at Playing Crazy Down Under. From all of us in the USA, good day, mates. mates. Oi! <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Meanwhile, I'm joined by Amanda from Puddle to Pond Financial. Amanda, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under and Ozfly Radio. Thank you for having me here. Excellent. Now, Amanda, can you tell us about Puddle to Pond and what uh, financial services you offer? So, Puddle to Pond, we started the practice 12 months ago, and during the past 12 months, we've really realised that pilots are struggling to find life insurance and income protection. Different companies within Australia just simply see them as too much risk. So, from there, we've taken it, looked at all the companies within Australia to find the companies that will offer cover, treating you the same as every other person, same rates, no loadings, no exclusions for pilots that are flying under, for example, 100 hours a year, um, including your micro lights as well. Yeah. Uh, How about hot air balloons? Do you look after us balloonatics? Sure do. Okay. And so how do you you go about assessing for the uh, life insurance? Uh, Do do you assess the number of hours, um, history of whether you've had any accidents or things like that? Uh, The accidents itself doesn't really pay a part in it. It really comes down to the type of license, what you're flying, whether it's a owner built or whether it's actually registered. Totally comes down to what you're actually doing. Okay. Uh, if you're a commercial, it's a little bit more risk purely because you're actually looking at loss of license, which is a lot higher risk to an insurance company. Yeah, loss of income uh, plays a bigger part as opposed to, well, I'm sorry, you just can't go out and bop around the circuit. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So uh, how, how does the process go? Say I, I want to organise uh, life insurance on myself. I uh, fly hot air balloons. I like to get into gyrocopters. I like to go and fly with friends and GA. What would happen? I give you folks a call and how you, let's let's go through that process. What are you going to step me through? So the initial process will be giving us a call, whether it be via email, contacting us via phone. We'll sit down, we'll work out what you're exactly after and what different angles of aviation you're actually in. We then go and speak to each of the underwriters as to what their guidelines are based on what you're doing and then we'll come back to you as to pricings or whether we can or cannot do it based on what you're doing. So in terms of what I might be looking for, it might be just life insurance. If anything catastrophic happens or debilitating, um, organise a payout so that the family can go on um, or keep me alive in, in, in the uh, wheelchair as the case may be, the, the classic uh, or it could also be loss of income prediction. Is that the next? That's right. Most of the pilots that I'm speaking to, it's not so much that they're concerned about what's going to happen in the plane. They're more concerned about what if we have a car accident or we get cancer or something like that. That's more what the concern is. We're all obviously think it's quite safe flying, yeah. but unfortunately the insurance industry itself tends to think that it's a bit more of a risk. So for us, we just want to be making sure that we're covered when we're actually driving a car, for example. Yep, it's not all about the flying, especially if you're flying less than 100 hours a year. You've got way more chance of having an accident on the roads, uh, especially with lunatics like me driving. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, okay, so we've gone through the process. You've gone to the various underwriters. What kind of pricing are we looking at? Is it it about the same as any other life insurance? It is exactly the same as every other person. If you're an engineer and you're going for cover, you're going to pay the same as every other engineer. And whereabouts can people find you today? Uh, so we're located in the main hangar, uh, front of the lovely Piper Sports in there. Ooh, are you drooling? I did. I did flew over, flew over on one of them. So oh, very nice. Where'd you come in from? Uh, Nara. Ah, not a bad little hop. Definitely. It was a bit rough, but it was good. <laughs> a couple of lumps. No, that's cool. So they should come to the main SAAA hangar, find you there just opposite the uh, the Piper Sports out at the front. And uh, have you got any special deals or anything like that, or is it more uh, meet, meeting people and uh, getting them up to speed? Uh, definitely just getting everybody up to speed. Come grab a pen and some lollies and <laughs> sure bit of, you'll bit enjoy of bling. That. <laughs> bit of bling. Yes. Definitely. Okay, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about the uh, financial products that you're offering here at Puddle to Pond. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest your day. Will do. 
Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Ozfly Radio for uh, 2013. I'm here joined with Steve Vischer. Steve, good afternoon. How are you, mate? It's uh, nice to be finally here. It is. We've been looking for you for a while. Yeah, it's a, a very long drive up here from Melbourne. It uh, doesn't seem to get any shorter. No, well, I've come from Perth. How long was that? <laughs> Probably shorter. You flew here. Yeah, well, here we are today, joined with uh, two guests of mine, Paul Holler and Norm Edmonds. You guys are both SAAA members, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben, for having us. Now, Paul, you're a uh, chapter president of SAAA uh, Chapter 39. Yeah, I started uh, Chapter 39 with uh, three other guys uh, back about two years ago, and uh, we've grown the chapter from uh, three members originally to now we've got about 43. And uh, we're just basically uh, trying to get people involved in the um, the sport of um, building aircraft and um, all that sort of stuff. So what sort of aircraft are your uh, chapter members building or flying? Um, we've got a wide range of things. Uh, there's Jabiru's and RVs as well, as well as uh, I'm building a Corby Starlet. And we also have had uh, one guy import an um, aircraft from Canada, which was a pit special. Yeah, so there's a wide variety of um, aircraft that we've got. So you're building a Corby Starlet, so am I, and Norm has too. So there's a bit of a theme here going. Got a trilogy going here, Ben. Yes, yes. So, Paul, whereabouts are you and your uh, production of your Starlet? Uh, there's a famous saying, 90% done and 90% to go. So uh, there's definitely an aircraft there. Um, I've got the wings and everything's sort of nearly completed now. It's down to the final fit-out and then go through the process of uh, the C of A and... Um, so you've got a complete fuselage, complete wing, pretty much all assembled. We're ready for covering instruments, avionics, engine attachment, which you've already done. Um, so basically a bit of fiberglass work, covering. You basically yeah, summed up what, what, I've, uh, what I'm up to at the moment. Okay. So under the regulations, how are you building the aircraft? Uh, I'm building it under the experimental category, um, So which means that what basically we do is you start off, uh, if you join the SAAA, uh, they get a uh, guy to come along who's a technical counsellor and he'll actually assess your uh, workshop, whether it's acceptable to uh, build an aircraft. Uh, if it is, uh, you go, go and start building uh, your project and along the way, this uh, technical counsellor can assist you in any questions or in how to build your aircraft and from then on it's um, a slow process. Uh, some people take... Uh, sort of a couple of years and other my projects are now in the 12th year uh, but I've had a few side distractions but um, uh, <coughs> sorry what was that wife and kids ah uh, yep <laughs> now you were saying a suitable workshop I hope you took notice of that Ben the workshop not your lounge room well it's uh, climate control and it was clean and friendly if you can eat off it we can build off it I've been to Ben's workshop um, kitchen sorry uh, <laughs> lounge room <laughs> it's all in the workshop now right <laughs> so Norm can you run us through a little bit about being a technical counsellor and uh, experimental regs. Yeah, sure, Ben. Um, SAAA has various technical counsellors around Australia, and they're just volunteer SAAA members. Yeah, so our technical counsellors, they just work in a voluntary capacity. They don't sort of sign off anything as approved. They just come to visit your project and um, keep you on the right track, uh, advise with any regulations. Um, You might need help to, you know, do some riveting or some gluing on some aircraft. Um, So basically, just keep an eye on your progress and uh, make sure you're you're on the right track. Another set of eyes, yeah. Also, we recommend, not only just technical counsellors, but what we call other experienced builders. And that's just your fellow chapter members and you invite them round for coffee and biscuits on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and everybody has a look at your project and um, hopefully they'll tell you if they, they see any little errors along the way or usually they can suggest where you can get some extra parts or extra items for your plane or good sources for paint or whatever it might be so the more people that come and visit your project um, the better in the end. 
Tom, these uh, projects uh, from from limited exposure I've had to them seem to be a labour of love and take several years. Uh, is there an average length of time that most people take to build one of these aircraft? Oh, RVs seem to take anywhere between four and who knows what years. Corby Starlets that uh, Ben and Paul and I are interested in, mine took six and a half years, which is about average for a Corby Starlet. That's all plans built from timber and plywood. I was fortunate. To, I was working shift work at the time, so I was able to work on it for quite a few hours every day. You'd probably say to build an aircraft around about seven years would be an average, some less, some more. Well, I think I'm rolling through nine years at the moment. I'm only halfway through it. A lot of talk about Corby Starlets, and uh, for those people here who may not be aviators, can you guys uh, describe that aircraft? Corby Starlets, uh, an all-timber and plywood single-seat aeroplane designed by aeronautical engineer John Corby from Sydney in the early 60s. The first one flew in 1966, powered by a 42-horsepower Augusta aeroplane engine. Italian engine. Um, soon thereafter, they changed it over to a, a VW conversion. So, um, so they've been flying for well since 1966 quite safely. There's probably around 50, believe it or not, in Australia. They're being built all around the world: Brazil, USA, England, Norway. Where else have we got them, Paul? Canada, Canada yeah, uh, France. So they're they're quite popular. They're semi-aerobatic. They're able to do gentleman's aerobatics, but no spins. And lately, the engine choices: uh, you can either have a Jabiru. 2200 four-cylinder 80 horsepower engine or a VW conversion engine of anything from 60 horsepower to 80 horsepower. Those VW engines, there seems to be no uh, limit to the applications those engines can uh, be put to, is there? Yeah, they're, they're quite popular. And the beauty about VW engines is you'll you know, for the next 500 years, you'll still be able to get brand new parts anywhere for them. They're indestructible. And how are they going with the uh, with the Jabiru engines? Are they proving popular? They are. This is the the Starlet's getting built in Australia and overseas. They're about still a 50-50 mix of Jabiru and VW engines. So one is not more popular than the other. It's just uh, you've got to throw a lot of cash at a Jabiru, don't you, Paul? And the VWs, you can, you can either buy an engine ready to run from various manufacturers around the world um, or buy a kit engine to build up yourself. Paul, uh, typically, can you give us a round figure for a firewall forward package for a Jabiru? versus a VW? Uh, the engine itself, when I bought it, was I, I think I paid about $14,000 for all the engine. And then uh, a lot of the firewood forward stuff I've actually manufactured myself. So it's it's taken a lot longer in, in time to do that. But um, you can actually buy the firewood forward kit from Jabiru, which I last time I looked at it was around about the four grand mark, wasn't it? So you can actually uh, buy that part from the you know, the kit from the Jabiru and you get supplied a lot of the bits. But I've sort of gone through and um, tried to build as much as I can rather than, than buying the stuff. So I'm more a pure build- builder type thing. So Well, that leads into the Corby style of being a, uh, a scratch built. So basically us guys, we, we buy a roll of plans like a model aircraft and uh, source our own wood and basically go through construction like a big model aircraft really. It is a big model aircraft, Ben. I started building model aircraft when I was nine years old, and I'm. Uh, and you're 50, not nine, and you're still no, going. I'm 51 now. <laughs> I've been still play with models, but the Corby's just a same, you know, wood construction plans, glue. In the Starlet, you have to pretty much make every part yourself. And now us uh, plans built wooden aeroplane builders, we like to joke with all the metal aircraft builders. And you look at a metal aircraft, and they say, "Oh yeah, I built that." And we say, "Ah, oh, you uh, assembled that. You we assembled built that. ours." <laughs> <laughs> so because we have to build all the wing ribs, all the wing spars, all the tail sections, tailplane fin, rudder, hinges. We make our own metal fittings, make our own undercarriage out of spring steel, get it bent, get it heat treated, do our own fabric covering, which is very enjoyable, by the way. 
I found the fabric covering part of it the most enjoyable part. So it's all a great, a great thing. Not quite the uh, knit one, pearl one, but almost getting there. Almost, yeah. You do use a clothesline to shrink the fabric, of course. The other good thing I found about uh, building uh, Corby Stella is actually the f- uh, internet forum. And um, we found that uh, there's about, what, about 400 people on the forum. And um, what it basically gives is uh, if you ever end up with a problem, you usually send a, an email down the line. And within less than 24 hours, you usually get um, a dozen responses from people from all around the world uh, who are building these aircraft with uh, ways of uh, they've attacked the problem and uh, overcome it. So it, there's a lot of support out there. And especially now with the internet, it doesn't seem so daunting when you go and build these scratch-build aircraft where talking to uh, people that built them years ago, they ended up, um, had to, you know, sort of nut it out and had no support. Now with the internet, it's absolutely just, it makes it a lot easier. Well, I, that's what I find with the scratch-build. You can look at the plans for days and days on end and you can't quite work it out. Fire off a quick email and say, hey, guys, have you built this part? Can you send me a picture? And then you look at it and you think, oh, geez, that's a little bit different than what I thought it was. And it uh, keeps you on the right track. With uh, usually scratch-build aircraft, uh, um, nine-tenths of the time has been sitting there th- scratching your head thinking about how to build it and one-tenth of the time actually building it. So, uh, you, so that's the real scratch building and scratch building, is it? Yeah, yeah scratching, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and by my receding hairline, uh, <laughs> you know, I've been doing a lot of scratching. All right, guys, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to go back to a bit of music and then we'll uh, come back and talk about more about the SAAA. You're listening to Ozfly Radio. Thanks to Aero Refuelers and QBE Insurance, Australia's private and sport aviators together under one sky. It's uh, just on one o'clock here at Ozfly Radio, and we're here with uh, Norm Imbards and uh, Paul Halley from the SAAA. Uh, guys, we're talking about uh, the uh, various aspects of uh, home building. Paul, you were saying that uh, your chapter's actually increased quite considerably in membership. What do you attribute that to? Is that just a, an increased interest in home building? Uh, in Adelaide, there wasn't really um, the organisation set up there and uh, sort of came in and everybody had the um, sort of the keenest enthusiastic, so it's just sort of catching them all and uh, dragging them into the organisation, so the need for it in, in the state. If you're looking at, uh, say, demographics, what sort of age group are you attracting? What sort of people are you? do you find you're attracting into the organisation? Uh, we've got a wide range of people in there. We've got from uh, I've got a young guy that's just got a pit special going, and he's in his uh, mid twenties, and up to the age of um, and I think we've got an eighty-three year old, so and still flying. So, and it, everybody in between. We've got every uh, we've got people ranging down Mount Gambier, which is about a four-hour drive south of Adelaide, to Wyala, which is about a five-hour drive north, and everywhere in between. So, we've got a lot of members spread all over the state. So, well, it's good to see that people are uh, keeping their interest in aviation. You know, some. Sometimes they're talking in the GA circles, uh, you know, there's a bit of doom and gloom around, but it's good to see that uh, more people are showing an interest in, in this side of the uh, sector. Well, it's quite easy getting the chapter going because there's a lot of people with enthusiasm and when people start building these aircraft, they're sort of daunted by how to go about doing it. And if you give a little bit of guidance or you can send somebody to another person that's got more expertise about what they want to do, it just helps the building process go a lot easier for these people. Well, it's often said that aviation is a small community community is very much about community, isn't it? And, it's, and as you say, uh, in, a, in a, an organisation such as this, you can really capitalise on that. And as you say, you spread the knowledge base around. Absolutely, Steve. Um, I've been involved with SAAA since 1997 when I joined. And I've found aviation people are the most wonderful people. And most of my friends these days are SAAA members and aeroplane people members from our local aero club. And um, we have social functions as well. And I just find aeroplane people are the most amazing people. Now, you're based down there 
there at Kyneton and it's quite an enthusiastic uh, little field there. We know they had a uh, quite a um, passionate meeting. There was some talk of closing that airfield down, I think, but they've uh, they really banded together and shown just what some good community spirit in aviation can do. Yeah, that's right, Steve. Our, our local council down there was, they own the airfield, but the Aero Club manages and, and maintains the airfield and the council was just totally out of their depth and there's a few anti-airfield people around the area and uh, on the council itself, uh, we overcame. It's interesting, isn't it, because uh, there's a lot of airline pilots actually live around that area. It's quite close to Melbourne Airport and uh, it's uh, quite a, I know from an airline perspective, there's a lot of uh, aviators in that area, so it, it surprises me that there's some people that just don't get it. Yeah, that's right. We In our Aero Club and in the SAAA chapter, we've got a lot of airline pilots. We've got pilots from Virgin Airlines and Jetstar and quite a few Qantas guys. Um, one of, I think we've got a guy, a 747 captain who flies a Thorpe T-18. Um, my, well, Paul and Ben and I's mate Frank is a A380 first officer. He's got a Corby Starlet, so he finishes his flight in the A380 and comes up to Kyneton and hops in his Corby Starlet. And the interesting thing about that is the cockpit of his Starlet is smaller than the, the seat of his A380. I bet it's a lot more fun to fly too. No automation there, I'm tipping. That's right. And he gets to do a few, you know, loops and rolls and has a bit of fun. Yeah, I think it'd make the headlines if he tried that in an A380, to be fair to him. Oh, you sure would, but there you go. I don't know if the computers will let him do it these days. No, they might not. So, Norm, what sort of spread of aircraft have you got placed down in your airfield? Our airfield, we've got about 55 aircraft on our field at Kyneton, just uh, just south of uh, Bendigo, north of Melbourne. Got, uh, what have we got, three Corby Starlets in our hangar. We've got, uh, I'll deal with the sport aircraft first, T-18, Slepsev Storch, the Stoll plane, a couple of other ultralight Sonics. We've got a GP-4, which is a homemade wooden, you know, home-built uh, wooden aircraft, 200 horsepower, 200 knots, first one to fly in Australia. Uh, the guy's done about 15 hours on that. It's an absolute rocket ship. You might be able to see, is Drew's red Falco over there still? Yep. Just, just there. Well, the GP4 is a bit like the Falco, except nastier and faster. Sorry, Drew. No, I, I definitely wouldn't mind uh, building a Falco one day. And other aircraft, we've got at our airfield at Kyneton, we've got Tiger Moths and uh, two Windjeels, one twin, handful of, oh, a couple of RVs, V6 and RV8. So we're, we're actually fortunate. We don't have too many RVs there at the moment. And we've got a lot of other aeroplanes getting built around the area. There's a, a little aerobatic plane called a Whiskey 4 getting built and another GP4. Yeah, we've got a good assortment of aeroplanes. So, Norm, your uh, interaction with the SAAA, can we uh, explain and step us through the process after uh, building a home built, what the process is afterwards? Yeah, sure, Ben. Well, so you, you join your chapter and you build your aeroplane, you get help along the way with the actual spanner work and whatnot, building your aeroplane. Then it come, comes time to get it certified, to get a certificate of airworthiness on it, otherwise known as an experimental certificate. Basically, within the chapter, you have your chapter TC come around and do a final thorough inspection of the aircraft with you, and you can invite your other experienced builders around too to do all that. And then when everybody's in agreement that the aircraft is absolutely absolutely finished and there are no outstanding items and everything's good to go. Then you call in the SAAA authorised person who's a, a delegate of CASA, uh, has a CASA approval to come round and uh, issue a certificate of airworthiness. A common misconception is that that authorised person is there to inspect every nut and bolt on the aircraft and that's not so. Uh, that's the, the builder's job, that's the TC's job, that's the chapter member's job to make sure the aeroplane's ready to go. And what the authorised person is responsible for is to see that it meets the 
eligibility to receive a certificate. It has to be registered and placarded. And also, uh, what they do is they do a risk assessment on the aircraft to make sure that um, that the aircraft is um, whatever they um, assess it to be, no risk to uh, any other uh, public uh, member. Of- yeah, and uh, generally, uh, so they they check out the airplane and uh, issue a certificate of airworthiness. And with that certificate comes uh, an annex of operating conditions and limitations, and that will say things like not to be flown over popular populated areas during test flying. Uh, it must be test flown within a certain designated area, clear of housing and built-up areas and so forth. Uh, it needs to be tested for, usually it's 25 hours if it's a, a recognised aeroplane with a recognised engine in it, or perhaps 40 or more hours if it's uh, got an automotive converted engine or a home-built, uh, home-designed plane. When you talk about the test flight regime, what does that involve? What sort of manoeuvres would you typically put an aircraft through? Oh, well, I'll jump in and jump in any time, Paul, but um, SAAA has what we call uh, flight test cards and a flight test guide and it starts off just with the basic controllability uh, handling and so forth and then works up to checking out all your stall speeds and performance speeds and loading. Uh, the test flying phase is generally limited to pilot only, no passengers. With most aeroplanes it's quite safe and routine but you know it can be a bit of a risky business. That's why it's done away from populated areas and so forth. A lot of, lot of the um, aircraft for example the um, RVs, they've got a lot of um, usually on the airports they've usually got a number of other people that have built them and flown them before so there's Usually, a lot of this is gone. People have been through that uh, transition to well, their test flying, and they've usually yeah. assist other people in there do, doing the same. So the idea is that uh, each particular aircraft would have a theoretical performance envelope that it should fit into, and you're, you guys are going out there to check to make sure that it conforms as close as possible to that. Exactly right, Steve. Yeah. So things like your standard RV and our Corby Starlets, they're they're a known quantity. They're a recognised aeroplane. They're going to fly well. So, um, but you, you test flight to prove that all your engines and your systems and everything's you know working well and working harmoniously what about modifications if you were to come up with some sort of fancy modification uh, how do they how do they look at that do you have to build it absolutely as per the spec or can you sort of as long as it fits within uh, safety guidelines can you freelance it a bit no you can go outside the square on this sort of stuff but then when it comes time for the the c of a to be issued in the experimental category the risks then you'll get restrictions put onto the aircraft. So if you go totally left field on something, then the AP will do will put restrictions on it, and those restrictions can be, could be quite harsh. Because what they're doing is they're not stopping you from doing anything silly; they're stopping you from hurting other people. So we might take a fully recognised aircraft and say take a, a Lycoming or a Continental out of it and put in a V6 Commodore engine, and then that will ensure that you have extra flying hours to fly off in your test period. Yeah, basically what you do with that modification is then you're going to, the AP is going to assess it and see, um, and because you haven't got data on that on that modification, there's going to be a fairly severe um, restrictions on that aircraft. For instance, an RV with a Lycoming in it, that is a fairly well-known cause. There's been thousands of Lycomings produced. They're, they're a known quantity. They know their faults. They know they're uh, with ADs and all that sort of stuff. So they know the history on it with a Commodore engine being put into it, then it becomes an unknown quantity. Jonesy, I was thinking they'd have to fit a pretty serious stall kit to your Corby Starlet so you could fly it out of your lounge room when it's ready. <laughs> Maybe a VTOL kit. 
shit. Oh, well, I made sure I got wide bay windows in the front of the house for that very well, reason. That, that's not as funny as it sounds, guys. Steve, um, there's been many people that built aeroplanes in their house and have had to pull the windows out to get the aeroplane out, th- out through the window when it's finished because it won't fit through the door. So I, you better put a tilted door on the front lounge yeah. in there, mate. <laughs> I made sure that the pieces could go out the front door. Now, Paul and Norm, you are both technical counsellors with the SAAA? Yes. Correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, what sort of projects have you looked at in a technical counsellor role and what sort of issues have you sort of picked up on and say, you know, you might want to revisit this? Yeah, um, I've, I've had um, inspections on uh, aircraft uh, Jabiru's, uh, also the RV. I've had a number of those that I've done, and I've also done one which is a, a it's called a Comet, which is guys building, which is totally, um, which is a highly modified of a kit that was built in the states called a Lightning Bug, and he's actually converting it from a single seat to a two seat, and also what he's doing is putting uh, two jet engines on that aircraft rather than having a, a piston engine in it. So, looking at this. The way that these guys have went went about doing this uh, modification to this aircraft has been quite uh, thorough in the way the process that they're doing. So and they're using a lot of uh, standard practices to actually produce this aircraft. But um, at the end of the day, when this aircraft's going to be issued a C of A, it's going to have a fairly uh, restrictive C of A on it to start off with until the aircraft's proven. So Yeah, that's really stepping outside of the box, making it a two-seater and then throwing a bit of turbine into it. Uh, there's going to be actually two turbines in it, so it's going to be very interesting how this guy, um, how he'll end up uh, uh, getting it to fly. So, yeah, very excited with it. It's actually a lot of these guys that are breaking ground with this sort of stuff and in the experimental, and this is how a lot of technology gets put back into the general aviation field by uh, a lot of the manufacturers doing experimental first and getting background information on it, then certifying it later on. So, Norm, what sort of aircraft have you uh, overseen in your technical role? Well, as I built a timber and plywood aircraft, that's sort of my specialty. I don't go and look at RVs generally because I, I, I don't I don't work with metal and rivets and whatnot. So there's other guys in our chapter that take care of those uh, requirements. West boys, not swarf boys. No, I can see there's a real pecking so, order going on here. Oh, yeah. So I look after a few wood projects. There's a, I've looked after a couple of Starlet projects. There's a Whiskey 4 aerobatic plane getting built around the corner from me and a couple of GP4s. I've done – I also – I do basic inspections on – other at other hangar visits we have uh, and uh, generally we find the builders are absolutely fastidious about what they do everything is done absolutely perfectly or not at all it's just quite incredible but uh, for a TC to go around what they're looking for is loose nuts and bolts and I like to go around and touch all the bolts and in the engine bay and see if anything's loose and we usually find it's either it's either done up properly or it's not done up at all so um, they're readily quite ready readily spotted or found is there any common faults that you guys have seen? No, I can't no, say there's really. a common I've, fault. A lot, lot of times I've seen uh, builders to, to be very fussy in the way they do their business because it's, they're spending considerably large sums of money uh, on their project. and they I know that feeling. And they're very, very fussy on what they and how they're producing this um, aircraft and quite often I've seen workmanship better than production aircraft. So a lot of these guys, when they start off, they have had no background knowledge in this and by the time they finish it, they're very confident in, in the um, material that they're using. Uh, when I started building my, my Corby Starlet, I had no experience on wood whatsoever and I'm, I've been in the aircraft industry for 22 years. Now that I'm um, getting to the end of my Corby Starlet, I find that uh, anything with wood, I'm, I'm quite capable of doing any repairs or anything similar to that. And it's the same, when whatever material you use, you get to know it and 
and your experience, and then that grows when other people come along that uh, you can assist them in their in their projects. So Norm, you're, you've built a Corby Starlet and it's flying. It's a, a very funky uh, colour scheme. I like it. Yes, Ben. <laughs> yes. You're uh, currently building another aircraft. Can you give us a rundown on that at the moment? Uh, yes, uh, the Corby style is a single-seater, and I started getting a bit itchy to get a two-seater or another air project. So um, uh, one of our Starlet builders in the te- in Texas in USA, um, he built the first Corby Starlet in the USA. He started building a, another project, a two-seater, his own design, timber and plywood again, um, and he's called it a fur star because it's made of Douglas fir timber. Uh, basically, it's, uh, well, actually, it's a wooden RV6 fuselage with RV6 canopy and cowl, uh, starlet spring steel undercarriage, tail dragger, and all timber and plywood wings, two-seater side-by-side configuration, standard Lycoming, you know, Cherokee engine, RV6 engine, uh, and for some reason he decided he was never ever going to finish it, so I did a bit of wheeling and dealing with him and bought it and he packed it all in a 20 foot container and shipped it over at great expense and I've got that in the shed now to finish off and when it's finished he'll probably make his first trip to Australia and come out and have a fly of it. Have a fly, excellent. Okay, the question is, how long is it going to be till you're flying it? I know. Oh, how long's a bit of string? I, th- I thought four years but I've had it two years now and haven't got too far so uh, I need to find some motivation. Anything you guys want to talk to about the AstroPlay for the moment? Uh, anything, Paul? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm pretty well uh, all talked out at the moment. Well, we might uh, fire up some music here. We're here with Norm Emmerds and uh, Paul Holley from the SAAA. And we'll be back with you uh, in just a few minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, Ozfly 2013. The sun is shining, the wind is blowing, and uh, we just want to let you know about the good folks at Sky Thrills. Sky Thrills, where passion and precision take flight. They're also... Uh, bought one of their aircraft here and taking people up for a fly. They can do a 20-minute aerobatic introduction flight with one of their instructors. And speaking of, go- of people who have gone up with Sky Thrills, Baz Sheffers from Oz Runways. Welcome to Ozfly Radio. Thank you very much. Yeah, I did have a nice fly with uh, Jeremy from Sky Thrills. That's, that's right. Yeah, and uh, you went up in their uh, Super Decathlon VH Sierra India Sierra. Yeah, I did. I, I went for a bit more than 20 minutes because I just, I've been wanting to go with a fly for a fly with Jeremy for a long time. I've uh, we've been catching up uh, at old events like these and uh, uh, consider them friends, and, uh, but we've never flown before. So I, uh, I took the opportunity on the, the slow opening day and I said, let's go do it. So we went out west, took it up, and um, uh, no, he was just coaching me through it, which, yep. was, which was awesome. I've done some aerobatics before, yep. um, and uh, Jeremy just coached me through it. We started with some simple aileron rolls, which was fun. Yep. Took it into a loop. Of course, the first time I pulled a bit too hard, stalled it out the top. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you forgot to push forward as you came over the top to yeah, round Yeah, or the loop. not really push forward, but just re- release a bit of back pressure yep. once you hear the stall warning start to go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, after that, one thing I hadn't done before, well, I'd been in one, I'd never recovered from one, but uh, we did some spinning, which was uh, which was great fun. Uh, first time uh, recovered from it, then, you know, just two rotations, and I recovered a bit slow instead of just being right on the on the on the aileron, oh, sorry, on the on the rudder. Uh, just instead of just you know, just giving it a big push, I just slowly moved over until it stopped. Uh, but you know, to, took a rotation to stop, and uh, we were out there, and uh, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, cool. It was awesome. And then um, did a couple of uh, barrel rolls, which went all right. And um, then finally, Jeremy took over controls, and he demonstrated an inverted spin for me. Ooh, yeah, they are fun. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they are fun. Yeah. So if if you go out there and uh, 
you don't mind hanging upside down for a little bit. You say, Jeremy, you know, can you demonstrate one for me? Because they are uh, they are good fun. You just invert the aircraft and instead of pulling back, you push forward. Excellent. And then when it starts to uh, the, the recovery, of course, is the other way around as well. But uh, yeah, you just hang it upside down with the aircraft spinning. You're looking <laughs> at the ground. Uh, <laughs> tons and tons of fun. It's really inspired me. My next airplane needs to be aerobatic. Yeah, well, you can't do what you've just done in the airplane you're normally flying, can you? No, well, I don't fly the one anymore at all. I sold the, sold the sports star and, and I'm on the lookout for another airplane. It's something that I can do this sort of thing in. Yeah, that that go down quite nicely. Well, I guess now you've got the taste for it. Uh, the Cirrus is out the window then, huh? Well, you know, everyone needs three aircraft, as they say. <laughs> I think I need at least two. I, th- I think you can get away with two. And if I can get shares in a nice IFR four-seater for you know, going to places like these and get a share in an aircraft uh, like a Decathlon uh, yep. to go have some fun locally, yep. uh, that would work out quite well. Now, uh, something else I'm noticing about you, Mr. Chef, is today is that, uh, like myself, you happen to have a jumper on with Oshkosh Flyin' written on it. I, mine I picked up in 2011, but I think yours is a little newer than mine. Yeah, I just picked it up uh, last month or almost two months ago now. Yeah. Um, what were you a, doing over there? I was just having fun meeting up with friends, having a bit of a look-see what's, what's for sale, and... Uh, just generally having a good time. But if the tax man is listening, it was officially for Oz Runways, wasn't I it? I did a lot of market research. Uh, all of the, the products that are out there now in the US and trying to steal all their best features. Uh, laughing at the ones that aren't so good. And uh, But uh, <laughs> yes, it was very educational and very very good for business. Excellent. Excellent. So speaking of Oz Runways, I believe you folks have just recently released another version in the last month or two, was it? Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing pretty minor updates at the moment. Because big features-wise, it's it's all there. Uh, there's a there's a few things that are in the labs. Um, at the moment, we're really working on trying to simplify a few things, uh, things that people don't really use, take them out or make them easier to use. And one of the demos we've got going in the booth right now is ADS-B traffic. Uh, so with a little uh, Xeon ADS-B receiver um, in, a, in a future version, uh, probably not too far away, uh, you'll be able to get that receiver and see ADS-B traffic uh, anywhere you're flying. That sounds pretty fantastic. Uh, yep. I know, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work when I'm flying a hot air balloon. Uh, ADS-B traffic for me is, uh, I've probably already seen them. Yeah, but, uh, um, well, you can, you, can, you can see all the, the aircraft all the all the, the big jets flying 20,000 feet above you that you'll never be in conflict with. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's really cool if you're uh, uh, you know if you're in, in terminal areas where you see a bit more of those aircraft. And hopefully in the next few years, there's there's some really good work going on by the folks uh, from uh, people like SAAA and AOPA that are working hard to come up with solutions to make ADS-B more affordable. And uh, uh, that's why it's always a, a, it's a good thing to always be a member of these organizations because it's not just a magazine. You know, they, they really work uh, to represent us. And uh, if, if it weren't for those efforts, uh, it would be fully certified, high-cost ADS-B only. And, and now it looks like we might actually get some, some cheaper stuff, uh, more affordable. That's definitely a good thing. And, uh, yeah, definitely a uh, very positive reason to be a member of the various uh, alphabet groups, as the phrase goes. And uh, although I must say, having uh, spoken to Kreisha just uh, yesterday, 
I think the magazine's pretty important too, but that oh. wouldn't be because it has a hot air balloon photo on it that I supplied, <laughs> nor does it have an article uh, about me, and uh, yeah, nor does it have an article by Kathy Mexted about the time I took her flying in a hot air balloon. No, yeah. that that wouldn't mean it at all, no. No, but it just shows, goes to show that, you know, Chris is working hard on getting awesome content for the magazine, and it, it's really, uh, you know, I have to say, under her editorship, it's it's become, uh, you know, a great magazine. Yeah, it's not just aerobatics and uh, wing walking, it's also back down to the slow old part of the town yeah really good mix yeah no i'm loving it i'm really enjoying that magazine bus is there anything else you'd like to say to us about uh oz runways and uh flying and so on at the moment well you know we've got our booth in the the main hangar the main exhibition hangar uh so come and talk to us uh we've got some uh, nice oz runways branded screen wipes you can clean your ipad screen clean your sunglasses uh if you renew your subscription right there and then we'll give you a hat as well oh, cool <laughs> and of course on uh, Saturday afternoon 4 o'clock right after the air show we've got our uh, master class uh, in the main uh, museum auditorium or how you want to call it uh, that, so co- come early if you want to see it because they're always packed and we'll show you some of the latest features and just walk you uh, through uh, some of the, the tips and tricks. Sounds like a really good reason to be at that auditorium or at the least drop by and hassle you at that beautiful looking trade show stand. I wonder how you got that here. That was such a heavy yes, thing. Yes, we, you know, we, you know, we, we were running a bit late and the printer was running a bit late and then it turned out that it was ready on the day that you, well, day before you were going to drive up the big bus from Melbourne. So instead of putting on a courier and taking a chance it might not make it here in time, you sacrificed a couple of seats in your big 16-seater work van and uh, got it up here in time. So that was, that was awesome. We set it up and uh, at the side it looks right and uh, especially, you know, the carpet there. and uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, so we're really pleased with it and we get a lot of people complimenting on it. Cool. I may have to come by and take my boots off and enjoy the feel of that carpet. Yeah. <laughs> Bus Sheffers from Oz Runways, thank you very much for coming on the show and having a chat with us. All right, thanks for uh, running this Osfly Radio, and uh, <laughs> I hope everyone's enjoying it and hope we get some good flying today and some, some good uh, crowds coming in. Plan your flight, fly your plan with Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. G'day, this is Owen's Up. Just a quick note to let you know that my new ebook, 50 Tales of Flight, is now out on Amazon and iTunes. Find 50 Tales and my latest updates at owensup.com. In the meantime, sit back, relax, enjoy the show with Grant and Steve. Aviation media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Grant, Grant, turn that down. At the Plane Crazy Down Under radio show, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to chat with us about the amazing world of aviation. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. The Plane Crazy Down Under radio show, Sunday nights at 8 on 103.9 Seymour FM. 
Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. TheVoicesInYourHead.com And welcome back, folks. Well, I'll tell you what, it sounds like we had just far too much fun there, boys. Oh, always, mate. I'll so tell you what. It should be illegal. Yeah, so much fun <laughs> it should be illegal. Absolutely. It's now, we uh, weren't thinking about the trip home. That's why. <laughs> now, David, uh, I want to mention your aircraft. What a slick looking machine. Can you just describe to our listeners your aircraft? What a beautiful looking machine. <laughs> oh, put me on the spot. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm going to remind well, you that you offered me a ride in it, and I'll, I'm holding you to that. Yeah, well, uh, as, as Dave Badham's the former Royal Navy. Uh, Harrier pilot found when he uh, took the, the RV-10 in the uh, lead of the RV formation, he came back to me and he says, you know, I've flown a lot of aeroplanes. That's a really nice aeroplane. And uh, I think uh, anybody that's flown an RV will understand that they do everything they should and nothing they shouldn't. And the RV-10, probably not unlike a Cirrus for payload and performance. And, and looks. Uh, and looks. In fact, when I first saw it, I just I saw it from a distance and I, it just struck me that it was a Cirrus until I got up close to it. <laughs> yeah, to the untrained eye, it's certainly would look like one. But uh, it's a great machine. We've um, clocked almost a 1,000 hours in it now in just over four and a half years, and it's capable of all sorts of nasty weather and uh, carries a good payload. Yep, and you take it up into the flight levels. You were telling us off here that uh, you can quite often cruise up in the flight levels with it. Yeah, typically. um, If we do anything that's sort of a couple of hours or if there's weather around, it's quite capable machine at sort of thirteen to 15,000 feet. You can go higher, but typically that gets you across most things and... uh, you know, you'll be cruising along at 160-odd knots, sub sub 40 litres an hour on the flight level, so uh, can't complain about that. No, no, uh, very nice. Very nice do indeed. You, do you uh, carry any supplemental oxygen in the aircraft, David? Yeah, the uh, we, we run a, I think it's about a 600-and-something-odd, 680-cubic-foot uh, oxygen tank with a four-way regulator, and yeah, that, we, uh, that, that just does, I, I couldn't tell you how many hours, but we really refill it, put it that way. It's a, it's a great way to travel. Cannula so, mask? So it's, yeah, I was going to say, uh, so it's like a uh, typical mountain high system. Do you use a mask or cannula? Um, we do use the cannula. You'd only use the mask once you got up around 18,000, and I just can't see the point in going that far. Uh, you'd have to be chasing a really, really good tailwind just to impress somebody with a photo of a GPS showing 300 knots. If that opportunity comes along, I'll probably do it. I was going to say, you wouldn't have already done that by chance, would you? No, no, I've seen some pretty impressive ground speeds, but not 300 knots yet. But uh, but if the opportunity was there, you'd see me at uh, sort of 17,000, 19,000, whatever it took. No, but being serious, um, no, it's, it's a good cannula system and uh, we, uh, we get very good life out of the bottle and you can travel from one side of the country to the other pretty quickly if, uh, if the winds are favourable or if you're just trying to get above the weather. You know, once, uh, once you're above sort of 12 thousand feet most of the weather's below you and most of the traffic's below you too so i wanted to mention uh, the interview uh, you know uh, grant you and josie uh, well done to get that interview with dick smith and ryan campbell i, I must i must mention that uh, you know when dick smith when he first flew in there we were actually uh, i don't know whether it was in one of the interviews there that might have been with the pumpkin head one i think they pulled that citation right up in front of where we were broadcasting and if you'd seen the filthy look that i gave his pilot i didn't realize it was dick smith actually inside that aircraft <laughs> but uh, don't worry I, he wouldn't have seen he was behind the pilot looking out to the side wouldn't have seen it yeah, but uh, I was giving him a thought, what, what sort of madman would pull that jet up in front? But as soon as Dick Smith got out, I thought, yeah, Mr. Smith, come over here and sit with us. <laughs> yes, there was some major stink eye going on there for a little while, wasn't there? <laughs> I wasn't very happy at all. 
<laughs> I think Dick was in the back catching some sleep. I think he'd, yes, uh, he was. he'd only just landed from uh, oh, somewhere in the Himalayas or somewhere uh, or other. So. He'd, he'd actually been to Italy and uh, been up in the hills in Italy where uh, Bert ah, yes. Hinkler crashed. He and I recorded a pretty good chat about that. Actually, during the towards the end of our chat with Ryan, it's uh, something that I've snipped out and we're going to save that because uh, we want to do a, a report on the Hustling Hinkler book, which is all about Bert Hinkler, maybe get uh, get Owen Zuppin, who, for whom Bert Hinkler is a, a bit of a hero. And uh, yeah, it was a really good chat with Dick about it. He, he wants to make sure that the whole memorial to Bert Hinkler's tragic death is kept up and people remember him. And Ryan Campbell as well. I tell you what, uh, I remember back to the last Ozfly where he got up there and did his uh, launch, basically, of his uh, campaign to start what off with his launch? flight to get around the world. And a uh, very nervous young man he was then. But what a what a polished individual he has become in the in the intervening year. I mean, not only doing the flight, but uh, the public speaking. He does it so well, presents it so professionally. And uh, you know, I guess David the SAAA must take quite some pride in in being uh, right up there at the start with him and following him right through. Yeah, I I would have thought my goosebumps on this topic would have stopped by now but here I am here I am you know the hair standing on my arm just thinking well bit over a year ago this young fellow phoned me up and he said this is what I'm doing and uh, I'd really like to come out to Ozfly and give my cause a little bit of presence and what have you and uh, I immediately said what do you mean presence how about we get you up and you can launch it at the at the function on the Saturday night and that can be the uh, international launch of uh, the, the world team flight and uh, anyway uh as you rightly point out, you know he was up there with a, a, a nervous grin and uh, sweating like a pig <laughs> when everybody else was freezing their backsides. Yeah, yeah, they were, <laughs> as you as you might recall. But having a few and, drinks, yeah. And uh, and then you see him this year, and uh, I tell you what, a uh, what a fine young man. It was absolutely fantastic. I, w- I was just really, really uh, enthused by the fact that last year he's standing there. He's got the inflatable earth with his uh, course mapped out and he's saying, I want to do this. And this year he's standing there going, guess what, guys? I did it. And all in the course of a year, he actually achieved it. And I thought it was a very well-earned, I I think there was at least three standing ovations during the course of his chat. I'd say so. You know what was really interesting? Uh, Apart from the the personal growth and the, uh, the humility, just the fact that he's so generous with his time, Nobody that's, uh, or certainly nobody that he could think of um, that contributed in any way has been forgotten or left out. You know, he's been very gracious in uh, in thanking everybody that was uh, involved. And I, I just think, what a fine young man. And, you know, the other thing that struck me, how, how many days do you think he rehearsed for that speech uh, at Ozfly this year? Would you say three days, four days? I'm going to uh, say he did it straight off the top. Yeah. He, he shot from the hip. Yep. He, yeah. did that, he did that whole... Uh, that whole speech for what was it, thirty-five minutes yeah. or something or other, with with nothing more than just a cludge together bunch of photographs, and all he did was stand there and talk about his photo album, yeah. and uh, and it was entertaining, it was informative, and uh, I think he's certainly done Australian aviation proud, and I think the awareness for children, and this is the single biggest uh, thing as far as Ozfly is concerned, is we want to encourage young people to to look to aviation as either a, a career or a hobby or a passion. He's certainly uh, done an excellent job of that, and uh, he's done a good job of that not only here, but also in America and a few of the other countries that he visited along the yep. way. So. 
great job, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, we're hoping to do some more work with him in the future along those lines because uh, you know anything we can do to, to help uh, work along those same lines is, is certainly something well worth pursuing. And I think the thing is with Ryan Campbell, uh, he's passionate about what he's done and I think obviously become more so over the year that he's been you know involved. It's one thing to, to have a dream and say, gee, I'm going to do this. But now that he's actually been there and done it and achieved that goal, he's become far more passionate. And when you, when you have that sort of uh, drive to do something, it shows. And I think that's why he, he's able to get up there with such relative ease now and, and present aviation in such a such a wonderful way. So it's I really the, great. Yeah, the powerful thing that will come out of it is anything that he turns his mind to will have a certain level of, uh, what would you call it, enthusiasm by default. Mm-hmm. People will get behind him because uh, they, they see him as a, a, a go-getter, someone that uh, makes his mind up and then makes stuff happen. And uh, I think anything that uh, he's involved in will be um, will be successful. And it's not every day young fellows like him come along, and particularly at nineteen. Yeah. You got to remember. Mm-hmm. You got to remember. We I sit there thinking, hang on, this bloke's behaving like a thirty-year-old or more, and you know he's only just finished school. Yeah, I remember what I was up to at nineteen. Mm. <laughs> yeah, flying around the world. Uh, uh-uh, wasn't part of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> probably probably best we move along from that topic. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I, I'm hoping to get the young. I'm hoping to get Ryan interested in podcast editing. I think uh, he'll do a fantastic <laughs> job. <laughs> if we can get him into that. I think he's smarter than that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I think he is. I think he is. Uh, yeah, and just before we go, I just wanted to uh, touch on that uh, conversation that uh, we had there about the the home the home building, Jonesy. Uh, a really good one for you. And then talk about getting onto a, a topic that people are passionate about. I really felt quite the amateur there because I've, you know, obviously I've never built an aircraft, but uh, you and the two guys there from the uh, SAAA were uh, really uh, getting into it. Yeah, we had a great chat with uh, two friends of mine from the SAAA, Norm Edmonds and Paul Holle. Uh, they're uh, two technical inspectors for the SAAA, so they'll come out and have a look at your project, your home-built project, and uh, give you some tips and advice and maybe where to uh, change some construction methods and uh, some ideas like that. So that, they'd come out early in the process. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't leave it till the end for them to come and have a look at it? No, typically the inspector, well, you'll you'll build a piece like the rudder and then you'll uh, ring up at a local inspector and they'll come out and have a look at it and say, yeah, the construction's good. I might try and do it. Suggest you're doing it a little bit differently this way. And uh, then they'll set out a program where they'll nominate X amount of inspections for the aircraft, uh, depending on your skills and um, your support group around you. So they'll inspect it before every single major component gets sealed up. And so for a wood aircraft like mine, before we uh, close things up, we'll varnish it all. So they'll check that it's all been done and it's compliant. So they'll check empennage and then they'll check the fuselage and they'll check the wings and when they're happy with it and you go forth and uh, apply the covering and paint and then they'll come in after that when you've done the final assembly and then you do the weight and balance calculations and CG work and then they'll usually bring in an independent person other than them and um, then we go through the C of A paperwork and then uh, it gets a ticket to fly. From your perspective at the SAAA, David, are we seeing uh, how are we seeing this sector going with home builders? Is there, you know, is it still is it still one that's got a strong following? Is it something that's sort of dropped off a bit with the recent economic challenges that's been going on around the world, or how's that all going? That's a good question. Uh, oddly enough, it's probably had the opposite trend. Australia's had a good exchange rate for a number of years, so the number of people building, particularly RVs, uh, has been quite substantial. I think, uh, as Ben has just pointed out, the level of uh, assistance and support that comes out of the SAAA for people that are building and may not necessarily have an engineering background like 
say, Ben or myself, for example, there's a good fallback in that the SAAA structure, the, the local chapter, surely somewhere within close proximity, someone's got the skills to help you. And uh, you, you get the uh, the technical counsellors or even the AP. If you get them involved in your project right from the very beginning, you've uh, got a far better chance of having a, a good outcome at the very end. Now, having that kind of support network um, means that you know, a large number of people that start a project have got a much better chance of finishing a project. And I think that's something that in more recent years, combined with a, uh, a strong Australian dollar and a strong support network, has meant that the number of people uh, completing experimental amateur-built aircraft uh, has actually been on the increase. So the uh, despite the, the downturn in the economy, that segment of the marketplace has actually grown quite steadily. So if that sort of answers your question in a roundabout way. Uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. In fact, um, I noticed that, well, obviously being up there in Narromine, there was a lot of that category of aircraft around. Uh, your aircraft, just to give people an idea, how, I mean, how long did it take you to put that aircraft together and get it up in the air? The RV-10 compared to, say, the, the smaller two-seater RVs, is roughly twice the number of hours of work. So everything that I talk about, you could probably halve. And given that my partner in the aircraft, Chris, uh, despite being a Qantas 747 captain all his life, actually had a bit of an engineering background before he started. He and I had built aircraft before, so we came into this project reasonably well positioned, and uh, I also employ an avionics engineer, so that also helped. So if I said to you our aircraft took something in the order of 2,400 man hours uh, for an RV-10, that's a very, very fast and impressive uh, effort. So for the typical home builder, you're probably looking at something in the order of two to 3,000 hours for a typical RV. So it's not a small project, but it is doable provided you stick to the task. So, uh, you know, it's one job at a time. And you've got to keep at it. I'm sure Ben would understand, you know, you... Would that be a fair call? You've, you've just got to keep at it one job at a time. Yeah, and definitely uh, I, I found, uh, to re- reiterate one of your previous points, that uh, with the technical counsellors, I myself with my Corby Starlet racked my brain for probably a good six months on how to laminate and uh, lay up my uh, wooden spar. Uh, I made a phone call to my technical counsellor and within four minutes he'd given me the answer over the phone. Don't worry about it. It's really easy. Use this type of glue. We'll lay it up this way. We'll get three or four guys to come around and give you a hand and we'll get it done. It's not an issue. That's the strength of having a good group of people, even if the person you're talking to doesn't have the skills. Chances are someone in the group does and... uh yeah, it's, it's pretty comforting if you, uh, if you if your life depends on that spa. You don't want it done only half right, do you? No. no, that's why I was putting a lot of thought into it. Better you and your friends over there in Western Australia than me. I'm only good with fiberglass and rivets. <laughs> <laughs> the project to build an aircraft can, can look like a massive, massive project, and they do take many years. Uh, life gets in the way and work and all that kind of stuff. I found that if you concentrate on one part of the project, undercarriage. So I'm going to do the undercarriage for this month and I'm going to do the rudder and I'm going to do the spats and I'm going to yep. do some of the fuselage, the instrument panel. Just concentrate on the one bit. You get that bit completed, wrap it up, put it in a cardboard box, stick it in the back of your hangar or your workshop and just continually chip away at the project. Um, and then one day you get to the point where you've emptied all your cardboard boxes and you're ready for a C of A inspection. So if That's anybody out it. there, 
is going to build an aircraft. Um, the weather might not be good. I, I'm constrained by uh, temperature and humidity conditions for the epoxy that I use and also the, the moisture content of the wood. So a good portion of the year, I can't actually do any gluing. But you just need to break the project down into small chunks. And um, it's like an elephant. You can eat a whole elephant. You just got to take one little one bit of time. At a time. And uh, I think the clear message there is that home building aircraft is something for people with patience, which is uh, certainly not a category that I fit into unfortunately. Just ask my doctor of late. Uh, David, uh, can you tell us the uh, dates there? Do you have them written down or penciled in uh, for the next Ausfly in 2014? The dates for Ausfly 2014, and the, these are provisional, of course, um, you know, subject to change at any notice, particularly at my whim. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, seriously, we've uh, we've penciled in, it's not in ink yet, but it's penciled in 11, 12, 13, 14 of September. Yep, um, same place, never mind. And uh, I'm sure in the months leading up, if you uh, go to ozfly.com.au, the details will slowly appear. Now, uh, before we wrap this episode up, we, we do need to mention uh, Analog L, Alan Van Page, our studio engineer, who I think was, uh, well, I don't think I know this, was the hardest working member of our team. I tell you what, Grant, <laughs> the poor guy, I feel really sorry for him. And he keeps volunteering to come out and do it again with us. The funny thing is he didn't have to work hard to be the hardest working member of your team. Oh, <laughs> oh ouch. Jeez, oh, zing. Oh, who is this guy? Zang. <laughs> but, but, I, but I would say they did work hard. Yes, <laughs> they did, Alan, and, and his brother, Kurt. And uh, we, we, we did want to have Alan on the show tonight. Unfortunately, he's uh, stuck at work and can't make it, but uh, we're hoping to get Alan on uh, in our end of year show, which at the rate we're going uh, will be our next show after this one. So, uh, But uh, yeah, I want to thank Alan uh, publicly on the show here because, uh, boy, he did a fantastic job. He set the whole radio station up. He gets the streaming going. He's got speaker wires running for miles all over the uh, field there at Narromine, and uh, even for the dinner at the end, he goes and rewires everything and sets up the uh, the PA and the audio uh, so that the uh, the SAAA can hold their, their dinner. So uh, he, he really does a great job, and uh, I tell you what, he's going to rue the day, Grant, that he ever called me out of the blue and said, hey, if you guys ever considered doing air show commentary? <laughs> I think he deserves a medal just because he puts up with you and I, mate. Well, okay, because he puts up with me. It did get a little stressed there at times, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. McCarran, communicate. <laughs> I may have dropped a few epithets there. <laughs> they, they did an excellent job. In fact, you guys did an excellent job. And uh, I can't think of anybody out of all the uh, sponsors, the volunteers, the council, uh, guys like Paul Bennett, John Watchman, uh, the SAAA crew, the AOPA crew, the folk from uh, Warbirds, everybody that was involved uh, did an excellent job. And I think um, you, you don't, uh, you know, I, I certainly couldn't have put on that event single-handedly. In fact, um, I think the majority of the credit really goes to all the people that contributed, uh, including yourselves for uh, putting on a, a, a fantastic weekend and uh, we, we hope to have you all back next year. Oh, we'll certainly be there and we really uh, seriously uh, appreciate you having faith in us uh, coming up there to do it and uh, you know, it, it certainly is a lot of fun. It's, it's a very long drive up from Melbourne but it's, it's certainly well worth it once we get up there and if they can keep turning on beautiful weather like they have the first two years, I think we'll all be very happy with that. David, uh, we can find out more about uh, the Sport Aircraft Association of Australia at your website, sAAA.com. Are there any uh, events or anything uh, coming up that you wanted to mention just before we go? Uh, off the top of my head, no. Uh, Christmas is coming, and I think we're all uh, looking forward to a uh, to a big break. Uh, I'm sure the Wings Over Illawarra event, which the SAAA local chapter has a big uh, involvement in each year, will be on in the early part of the year. We'll also be attending the RA Oz uh, Easter fly-in at Tamora. 
Um, so there's a there's a few things to kick the uh, the first half of the year off, and then of course uh, the the big one again next September. So uh, keep an eye on the uh, collective websites. No problem, David. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time to uh, join us from Brisbane tonight and uh, and chat about uh, Ozfly, and uh, we'll talk to you again in the near future. It's always a pleasure, and uh, have a good Christmas, New Year for not only yourselves but all the listeners, and uh, hope to see you September next year at Narrowmine. And uh, to you, Jonesy. Uh, well, you know you know you're a Western Australian correspondent, mate, but it strikes me that every time we uh, get you to do something, we drag you over here to the east. Yeah, it's funny that. I'll have to drag you guys over here one day when something's going on. Mate, uh, it's a pity the Red Bull Air Race is not coming back to Perth because uh, any excuse to get over to that wonderful city, uh, I would take it. Yes, I'm a little bit disappointed with the Red Bull Air Race, but unfortunately, it's just the way things go. Well, of course, uh, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, particularly people over in the West, uh, you know, with uh, with projects or story ideas for Ben, uh, certainly drop us a line here, contact at plainecrazydownunder.com. And we always like to find work for all our uh, correspondents and, of course, We've got uh, people all over the country, Kathy Mexted, uh, Anthony Crichton-Brown, although we know when he's not busy flying airliners, I'm sure we can get him to do some more work for us. <laughs> and, of course, Damien Rose uh, up there in Queensland, ATC Ben, and, oh, there's just millions of us now on the roster. Yeah, I know. It's making it so hard, the Christmas card list. It's just growing out of proportion, I tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Grant, uh, what's on the calendar for you? More balloon flying coming up into the Christmas period? Oh, look, I'm hoping so. I've got uh, a few annual inspections to do in balloons. Uh, we've got to bed down the uh, maintenance organisation that we're setting up and a few things like that. So I don't think I'm going to get much time to uh, totally relax over Christmas New Year because I've got quite a bit of work to do. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I know you've been busy, mate, because uh, you've actually moved offices away from the inner city out to the glorious eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So uh, I think that's a very good move. And I say it's a good move because it's uh, much more freeway accessible from my place. (laughs) Yeah, well, we uh, decided to find a new place that would allow us to join our city operations with our Yarra Valley operations. So uh, a couple of us jokingly said, oh, why don't you pick Ringwood Croydon area? It's right in the middle of that's equally annoying for everyone. And the boss said, yeah, you're right, and did. <laughs> so- and folks, I just want to tell our listeners, you can tell that McHeron had everything to do with the choice of that site because it's right behind a pub. Yeah, where they have the uh, lovely ladies wearing corsets, uh, clearing tables and delivering new beers between three to five on Fridays. So guess where our off-site meetings are? <laughs> so you're going to get me into all sorts of trouble, mate. <laughs> uh, don't worry. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Dead Under. Thanks very much for joining us, folks. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. We are going to squeeze one more episode. I know we haven't been putting them out as often as we'd like to this year. We keep saying it, but we are only going to wait a short amount of time to get the next one out because we want to do our traditional end of year show and uh, the end of the year is uh, rapidly approaching, Grant, so you better get that editing finished. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying. I've got a whole show's worth of editing to do, let alone this one, so. (laughs) Well, there we go. And just remember, when you're a Grant McHeron struggling under a pile of aviation podcast editing, I think you should just remember this. Apparently it's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Ben Jones, Baz Sheffers, and Grant McCarran. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. 
As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. There you go. I can make something out of that. Yeah, you can hack that together. Yeah, I can make something out of that. Yeah, we had a great conversation with... uh, Thanks, Steve. I just had a brain fart. Hang on a sec. (laughs) Looper. (laughs) See, like an idiot on my notes here, I've written R triple A. God. Let me just change it. AAA and then less bloopers. Would would you like me to interview you, Ben? Because these two other jokers simply aren't up to the task. (laughs) (laughs) Inspections on. Well, I just said the same thing twice. Okay. Hey, it's late over here, but it's not that late over there. What have you been doing, dude? Are you drinking stuff or what? Come on. No, I had a 14 hour day before I hopped on the microphone. God, welcome to my world. I've been up for Start again. Yeah, <laughs> much, much. Yeah, well, okay. So I've I've put a little bit of heat scar in the scoop of one, but you know that's about it at the moment. It's about time we release that video, I think, Jonesy. Oh, yes. hey, yes. hey, the touch and go. <laughs> the touch, touch and go, and go scrape and drag. Yeah, I, I did. I did. I did three circuits at Bacchus Marsh Aerodrome, including one touch and go. <laughs> Fair enough. Pilots have only been doing it since 1903. Hey, we rock. How does a Mr. Yeah, how, how do you fly a Mr. Proach? <laughs> uh, you generally try not to or just hope that there's something else afterwards. <laughs> the, the correct answer is slowly. So, <laughs> uh, no, mate. Uh, well, that's impressive, getting a rooster tail with a balloon. Yeah. <laughs> God. Can we wrap this thing up or what? <laughs> what were we meant to be talking about, Steve? Uh, I've got no idea. Last but not least, there's a bunch of guys down here on this table that have provided all the commentary, all the promotional work, and some pretty poor jokes at times. To Grant and Steve and Ben and Alan and Kurt. How do I forget these names? In fact, I've done really well to get this far. Thank you very much, the Playing Crazy Down Under guys, for, for all your work. 